Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to the Mary Rose. Uh, you can hear Kit already waffling in the background. Kit. Hello, sorry. Going. Uh, no one ever asked how you are. Because <laughs> it's always the same. Sitting here, recording history hack, wishing I could go travelling, nothing ever changes, blah, blah, blah. Uh, we're doing revolutionaries tonight, um, and it's only now that you've said, I wish I'd got Amelia out of the cupboard. Yeah, well, it didn't occur to me. Um, she's been in the, in the naughty step, because waking me up in the middle of the night and staring at me was kind of freaky. So <laughs> I've, uh, I've put her away. I think it was kind of freaky, and then you put those eyebrows on it, and it became fucking terrifying. Yeah, well, when you realise that the eyebrows are actually my own hair as well, um, it was the right shade and I needed human hair. Um, that's where it gets really to the next level of creepy. Oh, I think Heather's gagging. <laughs> oh, because she's a microbiologist and she's like, oh, the germs, the germs. You're right there, Heather. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> How is Ohio? Cold, actually. Snow today. So you're not getting any summer weather over there then? Well, we did yesterday. It was really nice. It was like 69 degrees and today we got snow. So it's normal April in Ohio. I love that you, she's actually gone and got a t-shirt made um, of her revolutionary today, which is awesome. Uh, We have Merrin as well, who uh, has spent all week prepping for this, haven't you? I have indeed. Absolutely. Yes, I have. You're such a liar. You've been pressed by (laughs) Sky Waters, haven't you? I might have been, yeah, yeah, but it's, um, it's all for a good cause, promise. <laughs> learn to say no, Merrin, learn to say no. Who else have we got? We've got Charlie as well. Uh, Charlie is in the house. She has finished her uh, proofs for Barbara and sent them out to uh, some of us, actually, which means that you're now, are you just sitting there staring at a wall now? Yeah, pretty much. I'm sort of, I'm resisting the urge to go into book two. I'm trying to sort of just take a few days so I made a cake instead so yeah you've not made a David Bowie themed birthday cake I have my friend is turning 50 today happy birthday Nick um and he's a big Bowie fan so yeah I got the Aladdin Sane flash on there and the Aladdin Sane font and some sequins because you know camp it up Changes. <laughs> Alina's just sitting there going, mmm, cake. You're not, it's cakes on the list of all the things you're not allowed to eat, right? I want cake and I want dairy and I want ice cream and I want chocolate. Thank God Beth isn't here, you know, chocolate and sweets. Well, and It's going to oh. be terrible because she's going to get home from work and log straight onto it. So she's not going to eat a proper dinner. Clive's going to be very annoyed because he's going to just sit there and see that she's eating sweets. And Alina's going to cry. I'm crying now at the thought of people eating sweets and chocolate. Not only that, but Heather's waving a pack of marshmallow Oreos at the camera as well. (laughs) No, stop it now. Stop it now. (laughs) Uh, We've got some bloke who none of us recognise in here tonight as well. Jonathan Dyer. Always the way when you go to the pub, there's always some bugger hanging around by the bar you don't want there. 
Evening. <laughs> uh, so now, right, are you going to behave yourself? Because we didn't tell everyone, because frankly, we thought it was mean. But you have been barred, haven't you? I have indeed. Yeah, um, and we don't feel it's fair to say what it is that you did, but it involved a flying helmet and a feather duster and a stick of celery. And if it happens again, the ban will be permanent. Duly noted. Excellent. How are you anyway, apart from having like a 1920s bob now? I, I'm cracking, yeah. No, it's 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 gone past that, and we're we're relatively close to sort of 1970s Charlie's Angel bangs. But um, yeah, we're good. We're good. So I'm looking forward to this. Brilliant. Uh, and you're now off work till after Easter, aren't you? Ah, oh, yes. Ah, oh, yes. Very you nice. lie around eating cheese and drinking wine? I, we're, um, we're meeting Team Holmes in his garden tomorrow under under the rule of six. Indeed. So, uh, yeah, the drink will be taken. And uh, I suspect that will probably write much of the rest of the weekend off. What is that on... <laughs> <laughs> Aaron is now waving a feather duster and some celery in front of the camera. I was like, what the hell is that? Moderately moderately concerning she had them to hand. I was going to say, she got those very quickly. Yeah, cease temperance. Well, she did spend last night on Zoom with Guy Walters, so draw whatever uh, conclusions you need to from that. Uh, Clive is here as well. Hello, Clive. Hi, Alec. Hi. I had excitement this week. I won on the lottery, the Euro Millions. Oh, not the £120 million I might have wanted, but £7.50 isn't to be sniffed at. It's not. That'll buy you a single gin and tonic where you live. Or three more tickets for the Euro Millions lottery. <laughs> I think that might be their plan. What do you reckon? Well, maybe I'll win it this time. You never know. Uh, fingers crossed, and then you can take us all away uh, on holiday somewhere. Well, I will. I will. Surely, as a, a you know, an extremely successful and experienced lawyer, if Clive won the lottery, it'd be like taking a pay cut for him, wouldn't it? People <laughs> 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 like peasants. This is just small change. I need it ah. not. Ah, toilet paper. Yeah, <laughs> it will help. My stash of golden goose feathers. I'm afraid, I'm afraid we're going to have to cut the number of staff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've heard Holmes in the background. You're right, Holmes. I'm not too bad. I mean, as per usual at Easter, we were, I was supposed to be going to the Somme with Johnny and others tomorrow. So uh, we're going to recreate that in my back garden through beer, and maybe I'll go out and scatter some shrapnel balls and bullets around, and we can. They could always poke around a big, yeah. big, big hole and sit in it. I think so. We've paid like, paid like 30 quid for an extra to come along and be a French farmer. But we don't know when it's going to come up. It could pop up at any time. <laughs> just a bit of shotgun. <laughs> just keep, yeah, just to keep it all authentic. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking forward to the dire, I'm never drinking again tweet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Standard. It comes shortly after Inevitable. Kate Bush songs. Yeah, and also we're starting quite early, so you probably want to start looking out for that tweet at about 9pm tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> it's coming, it's coming. Brilliant. Okay, uh, we're going to be welcoming more people throughout the night, they're on their way home from work, uh, Beth is probably in that dessert place right now, ordering up two milkshakes to sit and have, well, Alina's like not happy, she's going to sit and eat them in front of Alina. Uh, uh, Chris is on the way with Sophie as well, uh, and we'll see who else drops in, probably Marcus will probably just roll in if he cares and waffle about Napoleon and then bugger off again, which is pretty standard now. Uh, so Holmes is going to judge along with Dyer, who is 100% not prepared. Um, shits and giggles. Let's see what happens. Right. I don't. To be honest, I don't think any of us are prepared tonight. Charlie will be. She's a girly <laughs> and I think Clive will be because there's a reason he's a multi-billionaire. 
and Heather will be, and Kit just flies by the seat of his pants. Uh, but other than that, I think it, it's pretty pretty loose in here. Alina's sort of pre- sort of prepped. Uh, right, okay. I bet Alina, are you going to do like your granddad or something? My granddad wasn't a revolutionary, but I, I can try if you like. Off at some point, didn't he? Is this your great-granddad? My great-granddad was the defender against the Russians, but that wasn't really revolutionary, was it? It was if you were Russian. (laughs) (laughs) I can make it work. Look, we all kind of twist, or at least I saw earlier people trying to twist bloody documents and archival information. So um, I might as well do it. Might as well join, join in the band club, so... It's how you make money, apparently. That's when you get the big book deals. All this, all the people in this room who are sitting there writing books, you know, with actual facts and stuff, we're idiots, apparently. Uh, totally agreed. We suck. Let's just make it up. Uh, Kit wants to know if you're going to do Boy Check the Bear. But he wasn't a revolutionary. Wasn't For a bear, good? he was. I was going to say, yeah. <laughs> it's, all, it's all relative, sure. Oh, my God. You're going to make me start coughing. <laughs> Oh, all right, I'll give you a chance to recover before we go back. Oh, where should we start? Should we change it up a bit tonight? Because I think I've kind of been doing everything in a really similar order. Let's go with Charlie first. Heather's <laughs> uh, cracked open. She'd just come back from the fridge with a double stock of Mountain Dew. Nice. Oh, she's ready for you, Charlie. Okie dokie. Well, I have decided to stay in my lane this week. Um, I mean, I've had little choice in the matter, really, because I've been up to the eyeballs in illicit affairs and public money being lavished upon mistresses. But as Alex says, the book's out of my hands at the moment. I'm finished. This is all just Boris Johnson, not Charles II. Ha ha, nothing ever changes but the shoes, my friends. No, I decided to stay in my lane because I'm phenomenally lazy and because I am a proud Civil War boar. I'm wearing currently my available from the Great War Group War Boar pin. Excellent quality. Buy yours today. But it, there's something that feels wrong about calling the English Civil War the English Civil War. In fact, every part of that name is completely wrong because the war wasn't only fought in England. It wasn't one war per se, and it was certainly anything but civil. That being said, It does need a name and it needs a name of its own and something to distinguish it from the American Civil War, which always catches me off guard every time. It's that moment when I'm scrolling through the channels and I see a program listed as the Civil War and my heart flutters, but it's all too brief. And the History Channel is certainly not about to make programs about the war I want to bore you with. Yet it is arguably the most important series of events in our national history. The Marxist historians suggested that it might be more appropriate to refer to this period as the English Revolution. Apart from ignoring the the part that, you know, large conflicts took place in Scotland in the late 1630s and early 1650s, uh, the conflict in Ireland over the settlements that were forced upon them happened in the 1640s and the 1650s as well. It ignores the part that Wales and the Welsh played in the fighting. Did I miss something? Did we have a revolution? And if so... Who would I suggest as being the greatest revolutionary from this age? Because it's the age that most interests me. Now, I came up with a couple of candidates for you. So I thought we could throw this open to the pub. A little game of find the revolutionary, if you will. You know, shout out when you spot one. The most obvious candidate would be Oliver Cromwell. Pause for booing and hissing. Excellent. There we go. 
Cromwell's name was on the king's death warrant. We killed our anointed sovereign. Now, surely this makes this a revolution. The problem we have with Cromwell is that he really wasn't that much of a radical. He was a Puritan, yes, and that puts him at the more extreme end of the Protestant church. But he was no leveller. He didn't want all men to be equal. He believed in property, possession and finery, just not in the church. Cutting off the king's head was about getting rid of the king, not about making England a republic. This wasn't like the the American War of Independence. Cromwell knew that they didn't want this king or his sons, but he didn't object to one man being in charge. And that man was him. He would take the title of Lord Protector in 1653 and later on in the course of his protectorate, he would take on all of the trappings of kingship, bar the title, after a lovely piece of um, legislation known as the Humble Petition and Advice. This piece of legislation was passed in 1657 and it gave Cromwell the right to name his son as as his successor. You try saying that with a mouthful of teeth. Cromwell, within a year of this, had died. If he'd had more time, I have little doubt that he would have been known as Oliver I and we would have had a very different looking leadership over the last 400 years. So he was no revolutionary, but we have this revolution. So someone must have been. Okay, let's go back. So Cromwell served for five years under Sir Thomas Fairfax, the Lord General of the Parliamentarian Army, who fought against their king. Maybe Fairfax is our revolutionary because he led the army, but not quite. You see, Fairfax was fairly establishment, really. Either that or he was one of the cleverest men ever to have lived. No, really, hear me out. I'm here to bore the pants off you. There's not one bad word said against Fairfax. He was perfect. He was beautiful. He looked like a model. He was good to all his men, a good leader, yada, yada, yada. He left his command and retired when it was clear that the king was going to be put on trial. In fact, Fairfax's wife famously shouted the odds at the judges during the trial. She was awesome. He didn't sign the king's death warrant and he married his only daughter off to the Duke of Buckingham just before his best friend, Charles II, was invited back to rule. I think Fairfax was more shrewd than many give him credit with, but he was no revolutionary. Fairfax took his command of the army after another nifty piece of legislation called the Self-Denying Ordinance was passed in April 1645. This act called upon the gentry leaders of the armed forces to step down from their commands in favour of better qualified soldiers. And this made the armed forces on Parliament's side more of a meritocracy. This coincided with the formation of the New Model Army and resulted in the next battle being fought in June 1645 at Naseby, being pretty much decisive and all but ending the Royalist campaign. So it worked for Parliament. So if not Fairfax, maybe his commanding officer was our revolutionary. At the outset of the war in 1642, the Parliamentary Army was commanded by the Earl of Essex. Essex was the son of Robert Devereux, Earl of Essex, who was a favourite of Elizabeth I. (laughs) Favourite. Yeah. That Essex had been executed for leading a rebellion against the Queen, and he'd had all his titles stripped away as a traitor. Later on, James I saw fit to restore them to our Essex, the son, because he was friendly with his own son, Prince Henry, so kind of gave him his titles back. I'm not sure what happened 
But Essex seems to have become disillusioned with the Stuart monarchy and sided with Parliament against Charles I from his seat in the House of Lords. The gods of Wikipedia will even tell you that it was Essex who tipped off the five members who were going to be arrested by Charles I in January 1642. But I don't think we can really credit him with that, as everyone and his dog has variously been credited with this micro-rebellion at some point over the last 400 years. But here at History Hack, we would like to make it very clear that Clive O'Connell was in no way involved. No, this Lord was not a revolutionary. I'm picking on you, Clive. Love you. But he was. There's no way Clive could have been involved anyway. He was only about eight then. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. You've got to check your dates. No, Lord Essex was no revolutionary, but he was friendly with John Pym. Now we are getting somewhere. Pym has been described as, checks notes, a true revolutionary. Fantastic. Unofficial leader of the opposition party, Pym came to prominence after the first bishops' wars in the 1630s. He became involved in the tug of war over money with Charles I and demanded that the king expel all of his bishops from the House of Lords if he ever wanted another penny voted to him. Pym was instrumental in the impeachment and the removal from power of the king's so-called evil councillors, the Archbishop Lord and the Earl of Strafford. And he was one of the uh, members who drafted the Grand Remonstrance, which was a document detailing Parliament's grievances against their king, which they presented to him in December 1641. And as you can imagine, that went down really well. As well as their general dislike of bishops and everything remotely Catholicy, they really didn't like that the king could dissolve Parliament as the mood took him and rule without them, as he had for 11 years. This arbitrary rule was really what put their backs up. So Pym, being one of those five members who Charles failed to arrest, was undoubtedly an instigator of the civil wars. But he died of cancer in December 1643, so that's very early on into the war. He was no revolutionary. In fact, his pursuit of the rights of Parliament over the divine right of kings was nothing new. You see, the concept of the divine right of kings was newer than this, as Pym would have experienced it. That was set out by James I and was only a generation old. So I guess what I'm saying is, I got nothing, guys. I don't know. Who is the greatest revolutionary of this bunch? I certainly didn't spot one in the entire of the English revolutionary. So I think we're going to have to keep calling it the Civil War. Indeed. Although I I do like Fairfax's Do Grey Scott, isn't it? Oh, God, so fit. So pretty. (laughs) I'm not so... He follows me on Twitter and maybe he's listening. (laughs) Hi. Hi. I met him on a film set and... He he came up and he said, hi, I'm Dugray. And I was like, oh, no. <laughs> Enigma. Dead cool, like. Oh, I bet in your, it would be like in your head. I mean, it would be like when Holmes and I met Brian Blessed. I think in our heads we were remarkably cool, um, given that we were talking to Robin Hood's dad slash some Star Wars bloke. I, I don't think <laughs> we that cool, did we? I've just seen a picture of um, Captain Sensible. Ah, Captain. Yes, with our Charlie, looking very dapper. He's a lovely, lovely old punk. I love him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> lovely anyway, old punk. Revolutionaries, Holmes, do you agree that it's hard to pick one out for something as big as the English Civil War? Well, I mean, I think, Charlie, I mean, it was, it was an interesting pitch, but I think 
Charlie highlighted this herself. Was it really a revolution first? Can you have a revolution, a revolutionary if you've not had a revolution? I mean, what? We do have the glorious revolution afterwards, don't we? Exactly. But for ordinary people, what changed? Not, well, not a lot. Because the problem was, is that in terms of what they were able to set up after, after you've cut off the king's head, after you've sort of, you've, you've torn everything down and then you want to build something up. What they built was remarkably similar to what went before. And then as soon as the restoration happens, they almost erase, they try and erase everything that happened over 11 years and put it back to how it was before. So nothing stuck, nothing really changed. So I would argue that it's even a coup. When you see what happens later on with the, the new model army, when you've got pride to purge, things like that, that is a coup. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you 100%. Kit. I think it was a military coup. And given that the, the army had so much power in the administration that followed and that Cromwell was, he was a, an army man and whoever had the support of the army was going to be running the country. Yeah. It was absolutely a military coup. But... I, I find it. And I, I think. In this country, we don't really know that much about it. We know Cromwell and we know Charles getting his head cut off, but I'm not, you know, the causes of what's, what I always struggle with, and I, I have no knowledge of this whatsoever, but I think in terms of deaths, percentage of population, this is the worst war that Britain's been involved in, in terms of the amount of the percentage of population that died. So how did they persuade all these people to join these causes? Oh, there wasn't anything in it for them, really. <laughs> they sort of were, were they forced to do it or? It, there was, there were different, different ways of doing it, but yes, generally you have, you would, there wasn't a standing army. We didn't have the army at the time. Um, you would have your landowner, um, if your lord of the land, and if he declared for king or declared for parliament, he would effectively press gang the people who lived on his land if they were serving age to go off and, and fight as they had done in wars previously and and they would do since um what changed about that was was the new model army that that was a game changer in actually having something approximating a meritocracy and organization and drilling and those those kind of things in terms of fighting for a cause parliament had the better the better way of getting people to to fight because there was a big movement with the leveler movement. There were people who were saying, hang on, how come this Lord's got all this stuff and, and I can't even feed my family and he can take my, my farm off me and these kind of things. But then people genuinely believed that the king was put there by God as well. So there was a lot of fighting for, you know, for the higher power that kept people going out and fighting. Speaking of drilling, um, you've missed the chat going on in the sidebar, which basically means that by the oh time my gosh! He turns up in uh, five ten minutes. Uh, unfortunately, with his daughter in tow, he's going to be offered a timeshare in Alina with Heather. <laughs> I, I, I was slightly distracted from my notes at one point because at the corner of my eye, I saw that I saw the phrase "sympathy shag" pop up in the chat. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny, were you completely distracted by the chat? I, I you know, multitasking not being a male strong point, it's um, it made it a little tricky. Um, Firstly, Charlie, thanks for that. I will. The whole that whole era of of, of British history has slightly passed me by in the sense that the history teacher I had for at school was literally the most appalling teacher ever. He basically we used to sit down in front of a blackboard and he put two page numbers 
on the blackboard and we just used to sit and copy them out. He didn't say a word, didn't do anything, no teacher or anything. So that whole bit of history is just a bit of a void to me. And that's probably explained more about it than I ever learned as a 14-year-old sitting in front of a blackboard for a year. So thank you for that. Um, the only thing I gleaned from it, John Pym, Thomas Fairfax and Oliver Cromwell all died then when they were 59. Huh. Now, if they'd have all lived another decade, I could have tied it neatly into the filth that's going on in the sidebar. <laughs> but they didn't, so I have nothing further to add other than thank you. Oh, nice. Do you know what? I think there, there is an awful lot that history teachers of our youth have to answer for in making this boring because it really isn't, and it is such an important point of our history, and it can be really exciting. And I'm not going to... I'm not going to bang on more about it, but there is well, an amazing... seconds, Charlie. Okay, listen to Revolutions. There's an amazing podcast called Revolutions, and he does a series about the um, the War of the Three Kingdoms, and you'll love it. There you go. Yeah, we didn't do it. At my school, we didn't do this one at all. We did the Battle of Bosworth, but we didn't do this at all. Right, okay. Uh, let's move on. Thank you very much, Charlie. Let's move on to, and Merrin's like, not me, because I've only been prepping for the last 50. All oh, right, she's ready. Blimey, what a pro. Go on. Take it away, Merrin. All right. It is the time of the French Revolution. While the French aristocracy are losing their heads, quite literally, two bored English noblemen, Sir Frederick Rodney Finn, pronounced Effing, and his best friend, Lord Darcy, bored with the endless rounds of country pursuits, decide it's their duty to cross the channel and save their French counterparts from being beheaded by the guillotine. Vive la timeshare en Toulouse, as it were. Why? Well, the enraged and incompetent revolutionary leader, Citizen Fromage, something of a big cheese in the area, and his toadying lackey, Citizen Bidet, the man you can tap up for deep cleans any time of day or night, They've been scouring France, trying to find the elusive rogue who's been doing something of a Robin Hood recently. Saving the nobles, a man who's been working hard against the greater cause, a man nicknamed Long Noir du Man, the Black Fingernail, after his calling card of two digits rampant. Heavily disguised and after a series of audacious escapades, Long Noir du Man succeeds in saving the heirs and graces of the Duc de Pomfrite, and in the process, tricks Fromage into guillotining his own executioner. Not good. But this is the way the French Revolution tends to rock and roll, one's tet from the blade to the bucket. Fromage is chastised by his superior, Maximilien Robespierre, and also threatened with the guillotine. It's something of a habit, unless he captures Long de Noir de Main. Meanwhile, following their pursuits, Sir Rodney, wandering in search of someone to save, meets a young wench, as you do, as your father, with whom he falls in love, Jacqueline. He lives, he loves, he leaves her with a silver locket containing a set of his mother's false teeth. Fromage and Bidet are watching from the tavern. They see Sir Rodney Etting's attempts and are determined to thwart his goody-two-shoes love affair, but they also have their suspicions. So, using the locket to the trap, they ensnare Jacqueline, travelling to England to uncover the real identity of Longue Noir de Man. They are also accompanied by Fromage's lover, Désirée, a woman committed to writing memoirs anon, a woman who is on the lookout to marry a man with a title. She agrees to travel incognito with Fromage, and they maintain their disguises at the Comtesse de Blume de Matonte. 
They arrive at Epping House, where everyone's identity is eventually revealed. Brothers bash brothers over the bonds with big baguettes, and accusations about who's a bastard fly across the room. Liberté, fraternité, paternité. Foppish Sir Rodney feels a tad aggrieved at this debacle. He challenges Cromage to a duel to get a head start on his journey to Paris to rescue Jacqueline. Desiree is now herself in love with our joyeux hero. And even though I've lost track of who is what and where we are, everyone will do all they can to save everybody else from the guillotine in return for a promise that Desiree can marry her type of man. Oh yes, Desiree, la plume. Meanwhile, on arrival in Paris, L'Angle Noir de Man discovers that Jacqueline has been moved from the Bastille to the Chateau Neuf, the former home of an avid art collector and member of the aristocracy, recently presented to Citizen Fromage by himself. Taking on a new disguise as early French paparazzi, camera flashbulbs popping, effing Lord Darcy and the Duc de Pomfret travel to Le Chateau Neuf to Pap and rescue La Plume de Matante. During the ensuing fight between the rescuers and the French soldiers, most of Fromage's new art collection is destroyed. The picture paints a thousand words, but the writing's now on the revolutionary wall. But with the help of Desiree, La Plume de Maton, Jacqueline is rescued. The English saviours, their madame's entente cordiale, all flee the collapsing chateau to safety, while Fromage and Bidet attempt to stop it falling down. For their incompetence, Robespierre orders the execution of Fromage and Bidet on a double guillotine, naked, accompanied by a pair of baboons and a white flag. Of course, this does make Fromage a cheese-eating surrender monkey. But they do not mind. They are French. The whole revolution stinks. And the only good news is so, as far as the two Frenchies are concerned is that the Angle de Man is not there to see their failure until the executioner reveals that he is the black fingernail himself. Afterwards, in England, Effing marries Jacqueline, who becomes Lady Effing, while he keeps his promise to Desiree, who's married the Duc de Pomfret, as he has a title, and La Révolution se complète. Effing takes his wife into his arms. He kisses her passionately, while discreetly looking around the room for a way to chronicle his adventures and send an account of everyone's escapades back to Robespierre. A pen and piece of paper comes to hand. He seizes the moment. He looks at the camera. Revolution! Revolution! I think tonight I'm going to be busy with a French letter! <laughs> oh, I'm smelling an April Fool's rat here. Well done. Very well done, <laughs> Johnny, are you smelling the same rat? I, if if I could do a half-decent Sid James laugh, I'd, I'd drop it in now. I really would. Um, <laughs> Yes, I'll, um, nothing to add, Your Honour. Holmes. <laughs> well, I mean, as I said, we didn't we didn't study the English Civil War at my school. We definitely didn't do the French Revolution, so that could have been an entirely accurate ten minute summary. Alina, <laughs> it probably was. You didn't know because we told you she was taking the piss. Given your love affair with French history, would you know? I wouldn't have known shit. <laughs> I mean, you, have to, you have to wonder if instead of we were doing, um, if we were doing not like, the bravest acts of the First World War, whether Marion would have gone with um, 
Frankie Howard trying to smuggle his way back across German lines, up the Western Front and back to London with the German battle plans tattooed on his arse. So the series <laughs> there, I'll tell you. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was the Welsh accents at the beginning that gave it away. <laughs> Merit's like fucking cheap. <laughs> Brilliant. It is an outstanding film. Go and watch it. What film is it, Merrin? I can't remember the name. <laughs> Time to know. What is it called, Time? Me, carry on. Carry on. Don't lose your head. Oh, that's it. Yeah, don't lose your head. No, contrary to popular belief, Clive was not around at the time of the French Revolution. I can see the theme of developing now. I know. It's outrageous. You don't look a day over thirty-five, Clive. Even he. Oh, Alina, are you ready? I am ready. Whenever you're ready, are you ready? I, I'm just wondering because you just have to turn your camera off and go and I don't know have a cold shower or something. Um, <laughs> very quick one though. Focus on the history for five minutes before you get back to your outrageous flirting. I I am I am back and I'm on it. Go for it. I'd like to start my argument with a poem for the room because everybody in this room absolutely <laughs> loves. Poetry. Miming oh, being shot in the face. Uh, yeah, we are, we are Philistines. Go for it. See if you can change our mind. Okay. To nie prawda, że ciebie już nie ma. To nie prawda, że już jesteś w grobie. Oh shit, wrong language. <laughs> right, sorry, start again. It is not true that you are no longer there. It is not true. You are already in the grave. Although the whole Polish land is crying today, the whole Polish land is in mourning today. Even though your heart does not beat in your breast. By the way, this doesn't sound as poetic in Polish. Although your brain... Right, I'm going to stop because I really fucking hate poetry and I'm just doing it to wind you <laughs> Anyway, oh, no. It's it a cheery country, isn't it? It is. Uh, it's a poem. It's actually, to be honest... I don't really think you should translate poetry because it comes out really shit. Um, but it is kind of powerful, more in po- Polish than it is in English. But anyway, I've decided today to <laughs> go for Polish history. I mean, who would think that I would go for anything else? Basically, I thought outside of the box, I, d- I didn't think out of any box. I just chose this guy because I know he's like one of the most well-known people in Polish history. So I've gone for, are you ready? Josef Piłsudski. And if you people don't know, start getting on Google now to find out who he is. And funnily enough, I wrote a little bit about him. And hand it in for the great war group. More people would know who he was. Do you know what the funny thing is? I've had it written for three days and I just still haven't had a chance to read through it. To send it. Who he is, Alina, because he's fancy. Do do, do you know what? If you really want to do, go down to the great war group and read more about him and actually how he started the legions. I'm not even going to touch on that today because it's like, I'm just repeating my own article. Anyway, so Josef Piłsudski was born in 1867. So uh, a very fucking long time ago. In Zhuoff in Poland. Sorry, give me a moment. I need to blow my nose because I'm that disgusting. (laughs) incredibly sexy i'm sorry heather oh and look chris has decided to come in so maybe i should stop blowing my nose just a little bit more because it's just so attractive anyway uh, behave everybody safety's here as well (laughs) drive down the level of smut (laughs) i i promise to be i not swear anymore he was (laughs) 
<clears throat> Moving on. Uh, he was born in Zsorf in Poland, which was under the Russian Empire, but in modern day Lithuania, because Polish borders clearly are not the same as they were a century ago. He was highly influenced as a child by his mother, who is not influenced by their mother. I clearly am. Um, in hating the Russians. No comment. The empire, unfortunately, the Russian Empire treated Poles like second class citizens. So it's kind of inevitable that that's exactly the route he decided to take. And this idea of hating the Russians runs through till his dying day in 1935. So he ends up studying medicine in, in Kharkov in 1885, but he's suspended. Now, why is he suspended? He's suspended because he was a politically suspect person. So they basically got rid of him. In 1886, he returns to Vilna. And funnily enough, he starts to mix with some young socialists. So there we go. A bit of politically activist sort of stuff. He is then arrested only a year later on false charges. He was apparently plotting an assassination to assassinate Tsar Alexander III. Therefore, the Russians banish him to eastern Siberia for five years. You can now see why his hatred for Russia is now building and building and building and building. He returns in 1892. And at this point, when he returns, he decides he's going to devote himself to gaining Polish independence, which he inevitably actually does. And he becomes the leader of the Polish Socialist Party. And he creates a clandestine newspaper that is illegal, obviously. He's then arrested again, he's arrested, in 1900, and he's held in the Warsaw Citadel. Except he's an incredibly smart person. Yes, he is a smart person, for those people who tell me that he's not. He pretended he was incredibly insane. So the Russians then transferred him to a military hospital in St. Petersburg. He then escaped and took refuge in Krakow under the Austrian government. During the Russo-Japanese War in uh, 1904, and I'm, I touch more about this in my article, so I'm only going to touch very briefly, uh, he goes to find support from the Russians to try and raise a Polish army because there are Russians that are um, captured as prisoners of war that are officially Polish and blah, blah, blah. It just gets really, really complicated. Roman Domowski, who is his rival, unfortunately gets there first, but nothing becomes of any of this. Russia at this point is so weak. And uh, in 1905, he forms a secret mil union of military, basically people who decide to join the revolution. By 1911, this becomes the Union of Riflemen. And it basically becomes a school for young men who are still in high school, who get trained within the army. And this all kind of just ever evolves to the first brigade, which everybody knows about in the First World War. He ends up going to Paris in 1914 on the eve of the First World War. He goes to talk about Polish independence uh, and how Poland is a country of revolutions, which it is. And then it becomes uh, an uprising again and again and again, especially in the Second World War. He, again, I've mentioned he starts up the Polish legions. Go read my article if you want to know more, because I'm not going to tell you now. But the Germans don't want to help. Of course, when do the Germans ever want to help the Poles? They do not want Polish revolution uh, and in Polish independence. Uh, they want Polish forge forces to swear allegiance to them. And this becomes uh, an allegiance crisis. And Piłsudski says, um, I'm not going to say a swear word because there is a child in the room, but a swear word um, for them to bug off. Um, so instead, they arrest him. And he goes to prison uh, in July 1917. 
He's released at the end of the war and is back in Warsaw on the 10th of November 1918, the day before official Polish independence and also the same day as the end of the First World War. He is accepted as head of state only four days later. He devotes himself to Polish independence and he desperately, desperately wants to keep the Russians out. Russia then invades Poland uh, in 1919 and Piłsudski keeps them out. The Polish-Soviet war lasts for about two years and the, the Russians manage to get to about Warsaw before the Poles drive them back out. He becomes Marshal of Poland in March 1920 and in December 1922 he transfers his powers uh, to Gabriel Nartowicz, who was the newly elected president of the Republic of Poland. However, he gets assassinated two days later, so that was kind of pointless. And then comes a, another president. He goes into retirement in 1923. However, this is not the end. He comes back into the picture when there's a political crisis of 1926. Piłsudski marches on Warsaw, causing the government and the president to resign two days later. The um, Senate elects him as the new president, but he kindly refuses. Instead, he becomes a minister of defence instead. He becomes a major political influence in Polish politics. He is known as Poland's father of independence. And for me, he is the most amazing revolutionary, even though there are much cooler revolutionaries. But for me, it's going to be Piłsudski. Thank you. Yep, it was remarkable if you couldn't find a Polish person that had kicked off against being bossed around by someone at some point in your history, because there's enough people bossing you around. Uh, right. OK, Holmes, what do you make of this one? He was quite interesting. And obviously, I've, you know, I've not heard of him before. We didn't do that at school along with the uh, Civil War and the uh, French Revolution either. But, um, he was quite interesting. He seemed to he seemed to achieve most of his aims through relatively peaceful means. Is that right? He was in prison for the First World War a bit. I didn't hear. Like, he pushed back the Russian invasion after the First World War you mentioned, but didn't seem to be big violent uprisings as such. No, there were no, the, the violent uprisings were happening beforehand more than uh, than the the first world war is really complex when it comes down to Piłsudski because he starts up the legions he's a bit of a bastard he's like I'm doing things my own way basically sod everything and anyone says um he's not a violent person for me he's more I don't know how to describe it he is like standoffish do it my way or take the highway basically doesn't he end up being a politician yeah, he is. He ends up being uh, a politician in Poland. He's an, he's influential, even though he takes the backbench, everybody within the Polish politics. So I'm going to be really bad here. My own great grandfather advanced within um, the military because he was a legionary. So anybody who fought for him in the First World War, especially in the First Brigade, which was led by Piłsudski specifically, they end up having their careers advanced very quickly. And that's why my great grandfather was a general at the age of 35. So, um, yeah, that's a really bad thing. People on both sides in World War One, don't you? Say that again. You have Polish people on the German side as well. Oh, my God, there are Poles everywhere. There are Poles in Russia, there are Poles in Germany, there's Poles in Austria, they're in France, they're bloody everywhere, but they're fighting against each other. And this is the really sad thing when it comes down to the First World War. Poles are fighting brother against brother. And um, they might be fighting in the German army, but they're all unified. This is really interesting. They're all unified by one key thing and that's well more than one key thing uh it's like language and religion and culture all unites them anyway i'll stop ranting now (laughs) johnny are you surprised to know that poles were everywhere uh well yeah um that that was intriguing yeah 
like like Mr. Holmes, obviously it's something we never got anywhere near at um, at school over here. So you know, fascinating story to hear. I'm sort of curious to know how he's celebrated in Poland now. Oh, they love him. Piłsudski is the father of independence. He is like, oh my god, I can't repeat what I was going to say. Jesus, that would get me shot by my own Polish brethren. Um, he is. He's still celebrated. Everything is about Piłsudski. There's. Uh, books. There's film. There's a film about him. There's a TV series about him. It is. He is. If you don't know who Piłsudski is in Poland and you're Polish, get out. <laughs> get was, out. Was, was independence solely down to him, or was he just like a figurehead? It wasn't solely down to him. I mean, we say he is the father of independence. He's the one for pushed for. It. He pushed for. It. He took them all of the slightly military strategy, and then you have Domowski, and it all gets really complicated. This is such a non-straightforward part of Polish history. It is so complex that if I sat here with a map on the wall and tried to pin it all together, I think I might have a heart attack or stroke. And we'd all get very drunk. But thank you for at least outlining it for us and giving us someone else to think about. Uh, we yeah, have fascinating. Chris is in the house. Obi Ginge Kenobi. Hello, small person. Say hello, Zoe. Hi. <laughs> Why are we going with the Mexican revolutionary? There appears to be a theme going on in your front room. <laughs> because I had hats, nachos and a flag. It, it just seemed it all fell into place. <laughs> now Alina wants nachos. Uh, there's a proper for you in the chat. Enjoy that. Uh, <laughs> we are going to take this opportunity to grab another drink and then we'll come back and do some more. We've been ruining Chris's life while we were on our break. <laughs> we should stop that now. Oh, who should we do next? Oh, it'd be really cruel to make Beth or Chris go now because they just got here. Uh, I'm not doing anything on bar flying. What's that? I'm just bar flying tonight. No, you, you think. Get online, quick, Google something. Do it, James. Uh, <laughs> let's go to, let's do Heather next because I know Heather is actually ready because she's still new enough that she puts the effort in. It was a busy week this week, so um, I did mine on Michael Collins. Kind of said Dorman's not here. I know. Where is he? You even wore your Michael Collins T-shirt. I know. I dressed it to impress. I know. We're really impressed with uh, the Michael Collins T-shirt uh, and the fact that at least someone is going to rep Ireland, seeing as the Irishman isn't here. So tell everybody who doesn't know about Michael Collins. Okay, um, so starting out, a little background. He was born in County Cork, and he was the youngest of eight. His dad was the uh, was a member of the Irish Republican Brotherhood, or IRB. Um, in 1906, he moved to London to become a clerk at the Post Office Savings Bank in Bly House. He also studied um, law in King's College, London. He became a member of the London GAA, and through that, became a member of the IRB at the age of 18, and the Gaelic League. In 1916, he returned to Ireland and helped prepare arms and drill troops in preparation for the Rising. He served as an aide-de-camp for Joseph Plunkett at the Rebellion headquarters in the General Post Office in Dublin, and during the 1916 Easter Rising, he fought alongside Patrick Pierce, James Connolly, and other Rising leaderships. The Rising was put down after six days, but they achieved their goal of holding their positions for the minimum of time required to justify a claim to independence under the international criteria. After surrendering, Collins was imprisoned in the Frogach, I probably killed that word, sorry, internment camp as a prisoner of war, 
And due to his status in the rising, he should have been interrogated further, had harsher treatment, and possibly even been executed with um, the rest of the leadership that ended up being executed. As he stood in the jail in the jail yard, he heard somebody call his name, so he went around the building to figure out who called him and found himself in a group that was just being transferred to the internment camp in Wales. At the internment camp, he networked with um, physical force Republicans from pretty much all their counties in Ireland and became a key organizer. Upon release in 1916, due to public outcry, he emerged um, a major figure in the uh, vacuum created by the executioners in the executions of the 1916 leadership of the uprising. He joined the Irish volunteers in Sinn Féin and rose through the ranks to become secretary to the National Aid and Volunteers Dependent Fund and had secret organizational info and contacts given to him by the wife of one of the rising leaders. He, he became the teacher Dalla for South Cork in 1918 and then was appointed minister for France in the first Dal which he was present for on January 21st, 1919, where they declared independence of the Irish Republic. A war for independence was going to break out at this point fairly soon, and he was a director of organization and in, in the adjunct general for the Irish Volunteers. He also was a director of intelligence for the Irish Republican Army. He was considered a brilliant guerrilla warfare strategist, and due to this, he planned and directed many successful attacks on British forces, such as Bloody Sunday, um, assassinations of key British intelligence agents in November 1920. After the July 1920 ceasefire, he was sent with Arthur Griffith to London by the President of Ireland, Eamon de la Vera, to negotiate peace terms. And the Anglo-Irish Treaty established the Irish Free Trade Free State, but depended on an oath of allegiance to the Crown. Um, many people were very unhappy with this, but Collins viewed the treaty as as the freedom to achieve freedom. At this point, it's pretty much getting to the point where there are people who aren't happy with the treaty and are anti-treaty, and there are people who are like, hey, we'll, we'll get this, and then we'll, we'll peacefully go in and, you know, become more independent from Britain. He persuaded a majority in the Dáil to ratify the treaty, and the provisional government was formed under his chairmanship in early 1922. The Irish Civil War was basically the anti-treatyites and the the people who were for the treaty. Um, it was really brutal and really violent, and he did a lot of the planning and did a lot of directing of the arms and military planning that went along with that. He ended up being assassinated in August twenty second, nineteen twenty two, in County Cork by anti treaty revolutionaries. So unfortunately, he he was trying to create um, peace through fostering talks between the anti-treatyists and the people who were for the treaties. And unfortunately, looked like things were going to to happen where things were going to finally calm down. And he never really got to see it happen. Holmes, how much do you know about Michael Collins? Have you seen the film? I'm guessing that will be the starting point for many of us, won't it? I've not even seen the film. That's one where Liam Neeson plays him, isn't it? Yeah, it's the only film that Liam Neeson's ever made that isn't called The Phantom Menace or Taken. Fair enough. (laughs) Yeah, no, I know. So I've not seen the film. I know nothing about him other than what Heather's just outlined. 
Clive, you're about the most Irish person in the room right now. When I was a kid, I remember driving around West Cork and everywhere you went in West Cork, there was a signpost that said, to the site of the ambush, pointing to where Collins was shot. But, like, Collins was a hugely significant figure in the creation of the Irish Republic and in obtaining independence. The only question is whether he was a, as great a revolutionary as, say, James Connolly, who got murdered by the British after the 16 uprising. But that's a question of degree. Yeah. Collins, Collins was probably more successful. He was the father of the Irish, what we have known as the Irish Republic today. I mean, would it be fair to say, because a lot of the organisations that you mentioned, so the um, the IRB, the Gaelic League. Yeah, he, he did a lot um, politically. He was very influential in getting um, the terms for the Anglo-Irish Treaty um, put together. Um, he was sent by De Valera with um, Griffith. Um, he originally wasn't planning on going um, to see Lloyd George, David Lloyd George, but um, everybody kind of pushed him to do it because he was he was so heavily involved in the guerrilla tactics that he really didn't want the British to see him because they had very little knowledge of what he looked like. So he ended up getting pushed to do the political treaty and he felt that the best way to achieve freedom was to get it slowly in increments instead of just trying for an all out, you know, we want, we want to be independent and ending up in another war with the English, which not sure if we would have lost that or not. So. Did, did I, I don't know this it's rather shamefully, but did Ireland achieve independence before he was killed? Partial. They still had to declare, um, an oath to the king to be a member of um, parliament and the, the political arena of the doll. I mean, that's fair enough. We we have to do that on History Hack so we don't affect Alex's ac- access to the Royal Archives. Yeah, pretty <laughs> Unless you're slacking <laughs> off the Duke of Windsor, that's all good. Yeah. It, was about a de- it was about a decade later where separation was complete, I think. Yes. Johnny? Yeah, no, he's a fascinating character. The only thing I know about him is my brother did his master's dissertation on him, which I have read a long, long time ago, and I can't remember anything about it. Um, but yeah, he was. I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd sort of you'd class him as sort of quite a skilled politician, personally, from what like I remember. He was sort of he was quite a well-read and well and wrote a lot as well. I think some of his um, kind of memoirs and letters and so forth published after his death. So yeah, I'd, I'd sort of class him as quite a skilled politician, as as much as anything else. But yeah, it's a, that that sort of you know kind of decade leading up leading up to his death was a, was a fairly sort of tumultuous time in, uh, in Ireland's history. And um, yeah, no, fascinating one. Thank you. It was really interesting. Yeah, I think absolutely we shouldn't hold it against him that Liam um, Neeson played him in a film either. <laughs> given that he's like probably one of the worst actors in the world. Uh, but he, he, he'll live. My mum will continue Careful. to buy every DVD he's in, even if it's like Taken 647, uh, she'll still buy it. So he's not going to go short of money or food at any yeah, point. But, but he has a very special set of skills and he could come and find you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, where should we go next? Let's see what Chris and Sophie have got to say. Hello. Oh, the hats are on. The sombreros are on. Oh, check them out. Like it. You ready? Yeah. Okay. 
Okay, so we are doing um, Francesco Pancho Villa, who is known as the revolutionary hero of Mexico, a bandit, a freedom fighter, a revolutionary and a film star. He was originally born on the 5th of June, 1878, to Augustin Arango and Michaela Aramam, uh, Arambula, and grew up on the Rancho del Coyatotada. Isn't it plain that his, his dad was also the bandit Augustin Villa? Well, yeah, but, okay, no, it's, um, no one's certain as who his dad is, right? <sighs> Let you read a book. Um, he went to school, but... <laughs> I love that you've been corrected by your 10-year-old already. <laughs> and it's going to get worse. Um, he, uh, he left school with only basic literacy uh, to help with the family farm after his father died. He would also become a bandit, a bricklayer, a butcher, a foreman for the US rail for a US rail company, before returning to kill a man who had attacked his sister. Um, in 1902, he was arrested and pressed into the army as a way of reform. Didn't he kill an officer and steal a horse before returning to a lifetime of crime? But yeah, okay, yes, yes, he did. But um, after ma- after uh, meeting uh, Abraham Gonzalez, no relation to Speedy, he began to rob from the rich and turn his banditry to aiding a revolt against the then president uh, Porfirio Diaz, who uh, had stolen the 1910 election by arresting his rival Madero. In the north, Gonzalez reached out to Villa, um, to Villa, and he quickly took a took a large hacienda, a train of federal troops. And, a ta- and the town of San Andreas, uh, where before um, winning successive battles at Nechia, Camargo and Pila de Concos and met um, Madero for the first time in March 1911. That's when Madero sent him to deal with some people who didn't like him in North Mexico, where he captured two more ci- cities and deserved... Diaz. Diaz resigned on 25th. May 1911, making Madero president, and he sent the rebels home. And uh, Villa and the other revolutionaries fully expected Madero to hand out lands, etc., to the to his loyal soldiers. He said he'd do it later. Villa told him that you sir have developed, destroyed the revolution. This will eventually cost us our necks. So, as you can guess, Madero was pretty, was a pretty crap president, and things soon went south. And Villa was soon recalled to fight against revolt um, by his by the former Madero allies. And with four hundred men, he, he captured Paral and joined General Huerta for further operations. Which saw him begin made a brigadier general, then seen as an enemy by the general who was going to have him shot for striking him and stealing a <laughs> But he went to prison instead, where he learned um, that he, General Heroita was going to try and overthrow Madero. And on his escape on Christmas Day 1912, he tried to get a message to home, but was too late. Heroita took, took over and killed Madero and, Gon- and Gonzalez with seven men, a few more mules and scant supplies <laughs> Villa began a counterinsurgence. Villa joined Governor Carranza, who he saw as the lesser of two evils, and he would recruit, would go on to recruit competent officers who were idealists or mercenaries. He also raised money by forced assessments on hostile hacienda owners, train robberies. In one, he captured 122 bars of silver 
and a Wells Fargo employee who he kept as a, as a hostage until Wells Fargo helped him sell the bars that he'd stolen. That's the one several battles and got attention from America, an American, the American writer John Reed, among others. He told stories of the brave men and women and their wins. His wins were studied by the U.S. Army and Hollywood made movies of him giving him half the money they made in all of his soldiers. Reed also went on to talk about how they, how he robbed from the rich and gave to the poor, with Woodrow Wilson saying uh, Villa was <clears throat> a sort of Robin Hood who had spent an event, eventful life robbing the rich in order to give to the poor. He'd even at some point kept a butcher's shop for the purpose of distributing the poor the proceeds of his innumerable cattle raids. Villa was elected provisional governor of um, Chihuahua. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, (laughs) Soph. By by the other commanders, which was against Carazana's wishes. He printed his own money, forced the wealthy to give him loans, confiscated gold from banks and took hostages until the banks told them um, where the hidden gold reserves were. He also appropriated land and gave it to his soldiers. He also had, was able um, able to uh, buy, with all the money he got, draft mules, cavalry horses, guns, ammunition, mobile hospitals, ambulances, and rebuilt the re- the railway. Really, Chris? Railway south of uh, Chihuahua City. <laughs> it was so good that Carranza. Carranza told him to stop and took the car from from his train away, so he would. So he wouldn't take Mexico City before he. Um, the way this weight cost Villa thousands because he was actually pay, he was the only person to be paying his soldiers uh, a mighty peso a day, and with thousands of soldiers every day, it cost him quite a lot of money. Um, however, he did then defeated went off and defeated the federal army at the heavily defended um, Zacatecas, costing twelve thousand federal casualties, which of which seven thousand were dead which break, broke the back of Huerta's forces, and the general fled the country, leaving Carranza as president. I'll, do, I'll read it because you're eating, don't worry. Casa <laughs> told Villa um, that he thought um, that the new president would turn, turn dictator, and they broke from him. This led to civil war, um, a civil war of the winners, where Villa was, pre- um, Villa was portrayed as a sociopathic bandit by his enemies, who withdrew to the coastal ports of Veracruz and Tampalia. Um, where they could generate a greater income. The federal general of uh, Beragon marched north and heavily defeated Villa in several battles. Aguia Prieta Villa lost 1,500 soldiers and took a good chunk of the survive and the good chunk of the survivors deserted him, leaving him with only 200 men, and and he fled into the mountains. On the 9th of March, he conducted a raid on New Mexico to steal guns. They burned the town of Columbus, stole 100 horses and supplies, killing 18 Americans. Other raids in Texas um, were carried out, and General Pershing, later of World War I fame, uh, was sent south to deal with him with 5,000 men and aircraft and trucks. Enter Germany. Daddy, no, no German. (laughs) 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 They did. The Germans wanted wanted safe ports for their raiding ships and to cause problems. They first offered Hyota power, and then backing uh, the backing of Carenza um, to attack America in the Zimmerman letter, they offered Villa guns and support. 
Villa took the guns and the ammo, but only because he couldn't get them from anywhere else. And he certainly didn't work for Germany, especially that by 1916, communications with Chihuahua were pretty far beyond uh, <laughs> the Germans' capability. I love that Sophie and I are the only ones laughing every time you say the word Chihuahua. <laughs> uh, Villa had become nothing but a guerrilla leader by this point, and the president was was dealing with um, Z- um, Zapata instead. Running him for defeat, he decided to call it a day if it could be made worth his while. Following the, assa- um, the assassination of Carranza, Villa requested the new president, Adolfo Hureta, for amnesty, and he would stop fighting, which which was all agreed. Viala got tw- Villa got not Viali twenty five twenty five thousand acre hacienda, at least two with a, for with, in which two hundred of his loyal soldiers lived with him, and he also got a pension of five hundred thousand gold um, bars and fifty do- further bodyguards. He was killed on the twelfth of July. Yeah, twentieth. What am I talking about? <laughs> The 20th of July, 1923, Brilliant. Uh, Holmes, surely, surely we need a central slash South American revolutionary on our list tonight. I think so. I mean, what I, how, first of all, I, I quite like the impression of um, Clive that Chris did part way through that. I thought that was a nice touch. Um, <laughs> what, I, what I struggle from this description is they seem to be sort of one useless president replaced by another one. They're all a bit useless or corrupt. So how much difference did he re- ultimately make? Um, not much, but his policies towards giving, um, aiding the poor and uh, land reform to a degree, uh, handing it out to his loyal soldiers, was adapted by uh, Carranza um, during the Civil War of the Winners as a way, not just as a way of uh, reforming Mexico, but also as a way of... Um, Gaining loyalty of his sort of his of Villa's supporters, um, so it did it did have an effect that they did start to help the poor a bit more. And and that was those policies they were targeted at the soldiers to keep them loyal. They weren't rolled out to the, the general Mexicans. Um, they, um, Villa did. He was handing them out to the people within the area that he was administrating as um, governor. And um, I believe that Carranza then wheeled it out to other to the others as well, where he could. They were sort of handing out lands and uh, distributing it from their enemies. Okay, nothing further from me. Oh, yeah? Um His intriguing character. I mean, just really a little about him now. He was fairly prolific in terms of the, his ability to win battles, as far as I can see. Uh, yeah, he was he was quite tactically good, but. Um, he found a, a match later on um, when fighting the Civil War. Um, he, he was ludicrously brave, and his, his soldiers would follow him anywhere. He took one place that was considered impregnable, um, which was the one where they got caused 12,000 casualties. Oh, OK. And he, it sort of, just sort of kind of reading, just reading along, um, he seemed to have his finger in an awful lot of pies, if you'll, you know, pardon the pun. Absolutely, yeah. He because um, when I when I started this, I thought, ah, oh, he was just um, he was a revolutionary and a bit of a bandit. But the more I read it, I, I was quite impressed about how much 
um, how much he actually was um, involved in and all the different jobs that he uh, he managed, all the hats he was wearing. Literally, mm. in fact. <laughs> We're loving the awesome hats. Uh, Chris, Charlie thinks that you now need to buy Sophia Chihuahua as a reward. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's a little dog that looks like a rat. Pretty much. We've got your brother. He's close. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you both very much for that. That was excellent. You may resume eating nachos now. Alina and I on our diets aren't jealous at all. Um, Kate has joined us. You're right, Kate. I'm very well, thank you. Sorry um, I'm late. Yeah, don't worry. He's <laughs> like, oh, what a day. This is what happens when you join the rat race again. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's too much. I haven't stopped all day. I didn't stop at lunchtime. And, and well, I just haven't stopped since 8 o'clock this morning. I can't even cope. Right. OK, <laughs> I won't throw you in at the deep end now. Chill out. Relax. Uh, Thanks. Um, I have still got a little bit of editing to do, actually. Otherwise, I'm going to bore you for about 12 minutes. <laughs> no problem. Right. OK, let's go to I'm going to give Beth longer as well. Let's go to Kit because Kit, we're staying with the Hispanic theme, aren't we? We are. I almost went for um, for Jesus's younger brother in China and accidentally killing twenty million people, but I thought that was probably a bit of a downer. So I've gone for the only revolutionary that has a country named after him, uh, Simon Bolivar, uh, and for me he is the quintessential revolutionary. Um, however, the South American revolutionary wars are incredibly complicated. They aren't just the Spanish Empire; they're also against various junta's. Uh, they often have competing factions in them. They span 25 years. You've got characters such as Jose de San Martin, Bernardo O'Higgins, uh, Thomas Cochrane, who people might know as Hornblower, essentially. Uh, even uh, Maria Leopoldina of Austria, who pays a key part in the independence of Brazil. And I am going to mangle names terribly because my Spanish is atrocious. I apologize. But realize when I'm saying Simon Bolivar, I'm like, it's like saying I'm picking Napoleon. You can't just condense his life into five minutes but I'm going to try. Here's the crib notes. Uh, so he was born in Caracas, uh, which is now in Venezuela, but at the time was in the Spanish Empire. His parents died before he was 10, and he was raised by his uncle. Uh, young Sai went off to Europe, where he studied in Spain. He got married, uh, came back to South America, but after his wife died, he then returned to Europe, uh, where he hung around with Napoleon Bonaparte, who was being crowned King of Italy uh, by Clive O'Connell. Um, it was then... <laughs> He also met a scientist, Alexander von Humboldt. Now, Humboldt, you might know from the Humboldt Passage, things like that. Um, and he told Bolivar that it was about high time South America declared independence, just like those Brits up in North America. And so in 1807, Bolivar returned to South America and decided to do just that. Now, at the time, Spain was... Oh, as a kid present, I can't say the word. Uh, Spain was in very, very dire straits and trouble. <laughs> um, uh, the Peninsula War was raging. The whole thing was in chaos. The Spanish monarchy had collapsed because Napoleon stuck his brother on the throne. Various administrative districts of South America were arguing with each other, and the motherland was completely busy. So everything was chaos, and it was high time for revolution. In 1810, Venezuela thought, we're done with all this. Let's declare independence. Two years later, thanks to an earthquake and a battle, uh, even though the rebels won, Venezuela's independence was over. They lost. They were reclaimed by the royalists. 
But it isn't a cool revolutionary backstory unless you fail the first time, is it? Uh, so Bolivar, he gets, uh, he didn't lead the first independence war. That was uh, Francisco de Miranda. Um, he decides to try again. Uh, so he goes to New Granada. And that's sort of a proto-mess of what becomes Colombia. And he decides to raise a force to fight against Spain. He invades over the Andes. Uh, he's basically a 19th century Hannibal. And he takes his patriots on the admirable campaign. And he marches all the way to Caracas. On the way there, his army approaches a farm, uh, which is defended by a single very angry dog. Um, the patriots are about to shoot it. But Simon is so impressed that he actually recruits the dog. Uh, he names it Nevado. And with his loyal indigenous supporter, Tuniaka, the trio uh, sort of enter into legend. This dog goes everywhere with him. The campaign is also where he does probably the darkest deed because no revolutionary is 100% white uh, in terms of, uh, of being clean of, uh, of guilty crimes, uh, as we've mentioned. Uh, certainly some of them were 100% white in terms of what they did. Um, and uh, this is what we need to cover. The decree of war to the death. Namely, that anybody could murder anyone of Spanish uh, citizenship with impunity. Um, he, he did this in response to Spanish atrocities, but even so, there is no way I can defend it. And I'm not even going to try. So Bolivar, he marches across Venezuela and he captures it and he's holding on to the country. And there is a Spanish, uh, pro-Spanish uproar, a royalist revolt, and he loses again. He ends up fleeing to Jamaica and then Haiti. And with the help of a Haitian revolutionary, um, the hero um, Alexandre Petion, uh, he equips himself for fighting once more on the grounds that he will abolish slavery in all of the countries that he, he sort of frees from Spain. This time, there is no clear winner. He invades Venezuela and he fights for three years. Nobody is, is clearly victorious. So in 1819, uh, he decides to free New Granada. This is essentially modern Colombia. Uh, he wins the Battle of Boyaca. He wins the Battle of Carabobo, where his dog dies. Um, and he becomes the president of Gran Colombia. And that is modern Panama, Colombia, Ecuador uh, and Venezuela. At the time, it is one of the most powerful nations on the planet. Um, he then marches south into Peru um, and then, of course, into the territory in which will take his name, Bolivia. Um, and this is all a convoluted and crazy history because there are other revolutionaries marching at the same time. As I mentioned, you've got um, de San Martin marching up from Argentina. You've got Bernardo Higgins in, in Chile. You've got Cochrane off the uh, off the west coast of South America. But the problem with Bolivar is that his dream of a united South America in the same way that the, uh, the British colonies united in North America just doesn't happen. The United States doesn't doesn't exist. His control of this vast Gran Colombia lasts until about 1830. He's the first president, but he has to watch it fragment. It becomes Venezuela, New Granada uh, and Ecuador. And he even survives an assassination attempt. He is a broken man. He has dedicated all of his life and to, to a revolution and failed. And in fact, he announces all who served with the revolution have plowed the sea. Uh, he attends to um, abandon his beloved South America and head back to Europe. But later that year, he actually dies of tuberculosis before he can leave. Um, Hugo Chavez later claimed that he was poisoned, but there is virtually no evidence that that happened. But for me, Bolivar's story is the one that holds everything about a revolution. There is failure and repeated struggle. There's the bitter realization that freedom has a price. 
and that it can be a very poisoned chalice to lead. The legendary followers, the letters that he wrote about revolution, the inherent truths of struggle. He wasn't always a good man and he wasn't always a right man, but there is very little doubt that he was a great man. And for my money, one of the greatest revolutionaries in history. This raises a very good point, Kit, which is to be one of the greatest revolutionaries in history. Surely by definition, half the population has to think you're an arsehole and that's the half that loses, right? Yeah, and certainly uh, not everyone was with with Simon Bolivar. Uh, As I mentioned, there was a pro-royalist uprising which defeated him, uh, the the second um, uh, initialization of, uh, I think it was the second government of of Venezuela, I can't remember what they called it exactly. Um, So yeah, this was not a united force that was campaigning solely against the evil oppressive Spanish. It was far more complicated than that. In the same way that the American Wars of Independence, we often paint it as, as you know, the, the colonials against the British. But that forgets, you know, there were people like uh, Benjamin Franklin's son sided with the British. The Canadians, obviously, they didn't join in. They sided with the British. So these things are far more complicated. And we, we don't do history justice without admitting that things aren't always black and white. Indeed. Holmes, what do you make of this? How come Bolivia was named after him, where he, he wasn't born there? He, did he spend that much time there? Because he seemed to be going no, to very little. a lot. And... Very, very, very little time in, at all. Uh, his majority of his campaigning was in Venezuela, as I mentioned, and uh, and sort of uh, in what we call this, this area of sort of Gran Colombia, so sort of Colombia and Gran Granada. Um, the main reason is that there wasn't a name for the place. Um, so Spanish um, uh, South America was divided into viceroyships, uh, and you've got things like the Viceroyship of Peru, for example. You've also got a lot of argument in there. I won't go into it, but the various different countries argued which one was the capital, which is why Ecuador breaks off, essentially. Um, but this particular land, obviously, they needed a name for their new country and they wanted to celebrate the person that had given it to them. So they chose Bolivia. OK, well, that's good, because I, I wasn't sure whether he was involved in the naming. Cause <laughs> that makes him that that's, makes him sound a bit vain and unrevolutionary in my mind. But if he wasn't involved in that, then that's probably a good thing. Um, what I couldn't tell from your excellent summary was um, it seemed a bit stop start and not finalised. But yeah, so he was sort of only sort of a, a partially involved, really. And I, I presume a lot of these countries got their independence much later. No, uh, so so the, as I mentioned, the, the big independence movements, uh, certainly for the north half of, of South America, happen with him. Um, they don't form the countries that they are in the modern era. Um, they form this this grand Colombia, which is this, this sort of big mess. As I said, it, at the time, it was probably one of the most powerful countries in the world, and it comprised what is modern-day Ecuador, Venezuela, Colombia, Panama. Um, and so he was ruling that, essentially, um, as a revolutionary leader. So he did achieve independence from Spain. But what happened was very, very quickly, within a decade, the freedom he had granted broke up into minor factions. And again, that's something we often see with with other great revolutionaries is that the the dream they had, once they're not in place, once things happen, um, eventually it starts to fragment and splinter. And we see that with uh, with Simon. And then for your ordinary South American, did this change much? Absolutely. I mean, this was completely revolutionary uh, in in every sense. Not only were you changing who was who was in charge, essentially, but you were placing locals who had grown up in South America, who were um, mixed race in positions of power. 
So we're shifting the, the paradigm completely in the same way that the American colonies achieved independence from uh, the United Kingdom and no longer had to uh, listen to what was happening with, uh, with Great Britain. Sorry. Um, the same thing happened with Spain. And that's the big problem. That, that's why the Peninsula War happening is such a almost a distraction for Spain. They can't deal with their colonies because previously they were sending over envoys to represent these different viceroyships. Um, and that just sort of created chaos. We also see big societal changes, such as this idea of abolishing slavery, um, which doesn't happen in all of, uh, of South America. Um, in fact, Brazil doesn't abolish slavery until 1888, um, uh, unbelievably. But that's a Portuguese colony. That's not Spanish. Um, so, so, yeah, huge, huge sweeping changes. OK, nothing else from me. Thanks. Zaya? Um, I, I love the idea of, of being in Europe and someone saying, I think, I think you, you know, South America needs needs to be free, and he pops off. Yeah, brilliant idea. Pops back, little paperwork or whatever else, and just bundles back in and uh, and starts the calls. I think that's that's rather rather fascinating. What's brilliant as well is Kit. We haven't talked about his missus. <laughs> she has a whole episode of History Hack to herself. Manuel yeah, okay. is a revolutionary in her own right. The pair of them are quite epic, aren't they? His wife, his wife is incredible. He also has a lot of mistresses. And I mean a lot. If you thought Napoleon was uh, was sleeping around Europe, uh, wait till you see what Simon was doing in, in South America. But yeah, his, um, there is, there's, as Alex mentioned, there is an entire episode dedicated to his wife, um, who is pretty awesome. Excellent. No, thank you. It was wonderful. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, God, we've only got a couple more left now. Where should we go next? Beth, you ready? Just about, yeah. Full disclosure, Alex literally threw this at me 20 minutes ago. So, lying by the seat of her uh, sweet filled pants. Welcome to the fucking, welcome to the bloody club. (laughs) (laughs) Say nicely saved, but that wasn't nicely saved at all. Look at Sophie's little face. <gasps> yeah, tell, tell mummy that daddy's new girlfriend swears a lot. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, so let's get started then. So arguably, I know it's the greatest revolutionary. I suppose it depends on your definition of great. Is um, great the biggest impact that they've had in history? Um, I would argue that the revolutionary I've, decided to go with has had the biggest impact on history um as a revolutionary um or do they cause chaos and destruction and mine certainly did with his legacy lasting nigh on for a hundred years 
Um, and I think that any revolutionary would need to be someone that other revolutionaries were jealous of. They craved their level of success. And any revolutionary would give their right hand to have the level of success that this man did. This revolutionary became the head of the Bolshevik Party, who rose to prominence during the Russian Revolution of 1917, one of the most explosive political events of the 20th century. The bloody upheaval marked the end of the oppressive Romanov dynasty and centuries of imperial rule in Russia. The Bolsheviks would then later become the Communist Party, making Vladimir Lenin, the greatest revolutionary of all time, leader of the Soviet Union, the world's first communist state. Um, Lenin was born as Vladimir Ilyich Ulanov in 1870 into a middle-class family, being the third of six children and a fairly educated family as well. Um, he was quite well intelligent. He was first in his class in high school. But it was because of these educational backgrounds that made Lenin, as he would become known, and his family a target of the government. And what would start to lead to the process of radicalisation of Lenin? His father was an inspector of schools, um, so very uh, up on his knowledge. And he was regularly threatened with early retirement by officials who were wary of educating the populace. As a teenager, Lenin became extremely involved in radical activity after his older brother was executed in 1887 for plotting to assassinate Tsar Alexander III. Later that year, he was expelled from Kazan Imperial University, where he had been studying law, for taking part in an illegal student process. And at that point, he was 17 years old. So he's starting this radical activity at a very young age. And after his expulsion from university, he spiralled even further into radical political literature, including the writings of the well-known uh, German philosopher Karl Marx, author of Das Kapital. He would declare himself to be a Marxist and did later eventually end up receiving his law degree, where he practiced very briefly in St. Petersburg in the mid 1890s. He was obviously um, well known to the authorities and he was arrested for engaging in Marxist activities and exiled to Siberia, where his um, fiance at the time and future wife uh, would join him. Obviously, finding himself finding no life for him as a Marxist in Russia, he left and moved to Germany and then Switzerland, where he met with other European Marxists. And it's during this time that he adopted the pseudonym of Lenin and established the Bolshevik Party. And a real turning point, arguably, I would say, what is the pivotal moment for how, why and how Lenin rises in the way he does is Russia's involvement and entrance into the First World War. Um, obviously, I'm not going to go into that much detail about Russian involvement to start with, but Russia is really on the back foot. Um, militarily, for certain, they're a nation of serfs and autocracy, and they're no match for the modern industrialised um, countries of Germany and the rest of Europe as well. They're really behind. Um, their participation in the war was not great, to put it mildly. Russian casualties were absolutely astronomical. Um, food and fuel shortages for not just the troops, but back at home as well, were plaguing the whole country and really were already adding to the melting pot of what was happening in Russia at the time and the way that 
these radical ideas start to appeal to people. You know, if you are starving and someone is offering you a solution, will you surely not take it? Lenin was advocating for not just Russian removal from the First World War, but actually Russian defeat, um, because he believed that then this would hasten the political revolution that he desired. It would move forward his ideas of communism and Marxism. It would move forward and really bring people into what he was wanting to do. It was during this time that he wrote and published a document called Imperialism, the Highest State of Capitalism, in which he argued that war was the natural result of international capitalism. Um, hoping that Lenin could, you know, really exploit this situation, the Germans actually arranged for Lenin and other Russian revolutionaries who had been living in exile in Europe to return to Russia. They facilitated the return, provided them with transport and so on. Uh, and Winston Churchill later in retrospective of this incident, summed it up, uh, summed this move up by the Germans in, a, in this sentence. They turned upon Russia the most grisly of weapons. They transported Lenin in a sealed truck like a plague baculus. You know, so this idea that he is a plague, a virus, a disease, he's something that's going to infiltrate and spread. And I think that's actually quite an accurate description. So when Lenin has returned home, in April 1917 to Russia, the Russian Revolution has already started. We've got an awful situation back in Russia um, that has been brewing for years with the people of Russia suffering under an autocratic emperor. Um, the way of life being very poor, poor education, poor nutrition. Um, strikes over food shortages had forced the abd abdication of Tsar Nicholas II for ending centuries of imperial rule. Um, Russia had come under the command of a provisional government, which did actually oppose violence and violent social reform and continued Russia's involvement in the big scheme of things was not too different from the autocracy um, of, of the emperor to Lenin. The provisional government was a dictatorship of the bourgeoisie, and that's bourgeoisie, James, not, bourge not bourgeois. He advocated instead for direct rule by the workers and peasants in a dictatorship of the proletariat. So completely flipping what had been the standard for the time, being ruled from above, changing it to being ruled from below. And by the autumn of 1917, you know, the Russians had become even more war weary. Um, peasants, workers and soldiers demand, were demanding immediate change, that something had to be done. And that would then eventually become the October Revolution. And Lenin was acutely aware of what was happening at this time and saw his opportunity to seize power, which he did. He organised factory workers, peasants, soldiers and sailors into the Red Guard, which was a volunteer, volunteer, paramilitary force. And on the November the 7th and 8th, 1917, they captured provisional government buildings in a quite... It, it, Quite intriguingly, a bloodless coup d'etat. Um, the Bolsheviks seized power of the government, proclaimed Soviet rule, and making Lenin leader of the world's first communist state. Because of this, you know, what has been going on, this is a very interesting period of time. You know, we've got the First World War, we've got a lot going on pol politically as well. And this revolution, the Bolshevik revolution, as it would as you know you could coin it as it were 
did plunge Russia into its own then civil war. Um, the Red Army, backed by Lenin's newly formed Communist Party, fought the White Army, which was a coalition of monarchists, capitalists, supporters of democratic socialism. Even um, other European powers were sending soldiers to fight in Russia. And I know this for a fact because my great, great, great uncle, who served as a soldier in the First World War on the home front, was actually sent to Russia in 1919 and served in Russia for about four months. So we've got British soldiers, we've got lots of in outside influence. Um, it was during this time as well that Lenin enacted a very a series of really harsh, intense po economic policies, which he dubbed war communism, which sounds absolutely delightful. Um, these temporary measures helped Lenin to help Lenin um, to consolidate power and defeat the white army. And that was the official line. It was to consolidate and to defeat the enemy. But we all know that is just a power grab, really. He quickly nationalised all manufacturing and industry throughout Soviet Russia. He requisitioned surplus grain from peasant farmers to feed his Red Army. And this would prove, you know, disastrous for the economy, but also for the populace as well. Um, industrial and agricultural output absolutely plummeted and an estimated 5 million Russians died of famine in 1921. Mass unrest was threatening the government at this time and as a result Lenin instituted his new economic policy, um, a temporary retreat from his nationalisation of war communism, you know, it's a, almost a little bit like throwing a, you know, a, a little treat, you know, to distract from what is really going on. Apparently this would create this new economic policy would create a more market orientated system a free market both and a free market and capitalism both subject to state control and which good revolutionary then in addition to this uh which great revolutionary does not have a fierce way of putting down their opponents the people who have prevented them from getting to power in the first place you then need to make sure they don't take you out of power which is where when Lenin established the Cheka, the first secret police of And as the economy had been deteriorating through the civil war, Lenin used the Cheka to silence political oppression, both from his opponents, but also challenges within his own political party, ensuring that he alone was at the top. He had no challenges to his authority. He was the man in charge. Um, or, you know, there were some times where it went awry. Um, there was an incident in August 1918 where um, a rival, a member of a rival socialist party called Fania Kaplan um, shot Lenin in the shoulder and the neck as he was leaving a factory, badly injuring him. And after this assassination attempt, full-blown retribution, um, it was the period of time known as the Red Terror was instigated, a campaigner of mass executions against supporters of the Tsarist regime, um, Russia's upper classes who maybe had still hung on to their wealth, and any socialists who were not loyal to Lenin's Communist Party. So anyone who did not fit the frame of the perfect communist was an enemy. By some estimates, it's believed that the Cheka may have executed as many as 100,000 people between September and October 1918. And this is all just in the space of a year as well. All of that, that I've just mentioned is a year, give or take a few months. Eventually, 
three years of civil war, the Red Army wins out. And in the years that follow afterwards, Russia starts to form with Ukraine, Belarus, um, the Transcaucasus, as I found out today, which is what now is Georgia, Armenia and Azerbaijan, brought them in willingly or unwillingly, I would hesitate towards the latter, um, formed in 1922, these countries became the Union of Soviet Republics, the USSR. He became the head, Lenin became the head, obviously, naturally, who else? But he was in serious decline at this time. His health was pretty shocking. Um, between 1922 and his death in 1924, he suffered a series of strokes which compromised his ability to speak let alone govern, which as someone who um, part of his job description, I suppose, as an orator would be to um, speak in public, um, would be seriously detrimental to his role as leader of the USSR, revolutionary, communist, all-round idiot for little ears in the room. Um, And then his absence as well over those last two years, he withdrew from um, public view paved the way for the communist party communist party's new general secretary to begin consolidating his own power a man we know by the name of joseph stalin lenin did resent stalin and his political power that was growing and saw his ascendancy as a threat to the ussr um lenin dictated a number of essays about corruption of power in the communist party um these documents which he is called the Lenin's Testament, did actually propose changes from the Soviet political to the Soviet political system and also recommended that Stalin be removed from his position, which I think is a very, very interesting turnaround. Lenin eventually died on January the 21st, 1924. Stalin had got his hold on the Communist Party um, and he would do anything to keep that power, as we know, with the millions and millions of people that he killed in the years of his um, of his uh, leadership. But Lenin was actually a character that you could see then actually probably was quite well respected. Um, a million people braved the cold Russian winter to stand in line to pay their respects to him. Um, and he was moved several times th- across the country Um for people to see and also to keep him safe during world war ii his bodies was moved around as well this is a man who as a revolutionary had his impact measures the the total sum of seven years between 1917 and 1924 he may have had political ideologies beforehand that would lay the foundations for what was to come but this is a man whose influence on the world his influence of seven years lasted for nigh on 100 years with the continuation of the soviet union all the way up to the 19 up to 1990 and eventually as well when we look at the extension of the communist party into the far east so china north korea etc this is a man who as a revolutionary has had an impact on the world his country and every person in it a man who brought about one of the most feared ideologies of all time. Surely this man is the greatest revolutionary of all time. Well done, Beth, for putting that together in about five minutes and getting um, a piss taker James in there as well and the Borgias, uh, which would have been after last week unforgivable uh, if you didn't get that in. 
uh, yeah. Home. 20 minutes. I'm really pleased with that. <laughs> <laughs> I somewhere out there, uh, your assessment of the Russian army didn't do a lot in World War One. probably has a couple of people like... <laughs> Oh, but she got it ready. Okay. I have no time to discuss yeah. Russia in the First World War. Yeah. Leave her alone. There was no time for nuance. So. There was no time. <laughs> I mean, that, that was really good and really well put together. So well done. I mean, um, it certainly had an impact and there was a lasting legacy, as you mentioned. I mean, my, my one question is that if, if he if he hadn't done it, would there have been someone else who would have stepped in and done similar? Probably. <laughs> Probably, but he's the as 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 any true historian will tell you, we don't deal in what ifs, we deal with what happened. <laughs> There's a reason that the yeah. Germans put him on a train and sent him. Yeah. yeah. That, I think they saw what was their best opportunity to destabilize Russia. Um, who is the best person to do that? And they saw that guy, Vlad, getting back. And I suppose the other, for most revolutions that we've talked about, it's sort of the end result of sort of it has been better by and large for the populations that were there. But obviously, was that the case here? I mean, I know you mentioned that a million people turned up to pay their respects, but by that time, the secret police already existed. Did they do that because they felt they had to? There would have been consequences later on if they hadn't, like we know that sort of happened under Stalin, for example. You know, if rule by rule by fear and. Um... You know, well, threat of death is a pretty strong um, fact. You know, it's a pretty good uh, way of getting people to do what you want. But I think that if we look at it from the perspective of who followed him, Stalin, and what followed with Stalin, he is a from. I mean, from in the very quick twenty minutes, uh, half an hour research that I just did. And from what I already know of the period, he was a person that did actually inspire some level of confidence um, for a nation that had been ruled by an autocratic emperor for hundreds and hundreds of years, who were innately, to put it very mildly, fed up. Mm. The thing about Russia is, though, um, the problems get passed down the line. It's always massively oversized and ungovernable from one other um, and you're going to inherit some of that aren't you but yeah like Beth says at that point it was they knew they didn't want what they had uh, whether they would have whether whether I mean do you think Lenin and this is really good this is so cruel because Beth as I said had 20 minutes to do this but you think <laughs> Lenin uh, Clive you're a big lefty Wally uh, do you think he actually when he sat down and made his perfect plan of how it was going to pan out with him in charge if his revolution caught on and everything that they would have resorted to the sort of the red terror and stuff like that? Or is that just how it, he just had to, he did what he had to? You, you have to look at it in the context of Russia. And Russia was an extraordinarily repressive regime before the revolution. And as a consequence, the revolution took on the, man, uh, the mantle that the Tsars had had beforehand. The whole concept of the dictatorship of the proletariat required exactly that dictatorship. And that was the fallacy of the whole Leninist revolution. So, what, I mean, what I was fishing for was that did, did people's lives generally improve? I mean, I don't know, but my uneducated impression is that they probably didn't by and large. But by, by and large, probably more people's lives improved than didn't. Yes, because they were no longer peasants working in the field or being totally exploited in factories. That said, a certain class of peasants like most of the Ukrainian peasantry were wiped out, exterminated by Stalin's uh, 
collectivization and famines. We did have um, a stat, I think on a down the pub a couple of weeks ago. Uh, one thing you have to say is literacy uh, was yeah. massively mm. behind um, the rest of Europe under the Tsarist regime. And after a few years of the communist regime, that had changed hugely. One thing and I think at the end of the day, them. with these revolutionaries, Alex, Alex made a good point as well. You know, at the end, they're not going to be universally adored. There are going to be people who absolutely hate them. There are going to be people who despise them, who will do anything that they can to um, cause a hindrance to these kinds of revolutionaries. But in a way, thinking about it objectively as a revolutionary, their, their, their aim is not to, I suppose, is not to endear themselves to people. It's what they think is right, what they see in their mind's eye of what is going to happen. And you can't deny that Lenin did what he thought in his mind's eye. He did it. He went and did it. And he gained that power and overturned an autocratic um, leadership. But I, I mean, I guess the difference between Lenin and Simon Bolivar, for example, is that Simon Bolivar was driven by this urge that the people would be free, whereas in Russia there doesn't seem to have been they just swapped one the sort of autocracy for another one. Really, there wasn't that there wasn't that freedom that sort of underpinned other revolutions. Or have I misunderstood that? Kit, did you have something you wanted to stick in? Yeah, um, I, I mean, I, I know a little bit about this period because I did some some research, obviously, into the Second World War and atomic weapons and things like that. And so the one thing I would say in in, in favour of the the system that they implemented was that it, there was, for a period at least, a strong meritocracy. If you were talented, you succeeded, which didn't always happen under the Tsarist regimes. Um, the other thing is that when the Second World War happened, they knew how to mobilise you know, regardless of what your feelings are of Stalin, and he was a truly horrible man, he did mobilise, you know, was it 20 million fighters? Something like that? Ridiculous. <laughs> that you could only um, do in Russia. Exactly. I mean, exactly. But it they did help do that they hated Poles as well, Kit, just to, just to add for that, you know, 20 million Russians mobilising against Poland. I mean... Grania, I wasn't talking about the invasion of Poland or indeed the invasion of Finland. I was sort of more, more going about Operation Barbarossa, but... Uh, also, yeah. but Kit, have you seen the finish on a Russian tank? It's not going to win any design awards, is it? <laughs> <laughs> but they didn't need to. That's the thing. They got out there. Um, I think that's the thing. When you talk about the sort of the German tanks and these beautiful, these beautiful Panthers and they're all machine tooled to perfection, doesn't matter when the shells are flying. Just, just churn them out. Mm. Those, um, the T-35, T whatever it is. Count. Uh, 34 is the one I've been researching this week. Dyer, anything? Um, no, I, th- I think that's been pretty well covered, actually. <laughs> it's um, yeah, good, in- good intro again. Not a period in Russian history I know a huge amount about, other than the bits I've done for the, the First World War. Um, but yeah, no, fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. Well done, Beth. Uh, which leaves us with two more to go. Kate, are you ready? Uh, yeah, yeah. I think so. Go for it. I'm saving Clive for last because he has wanted <laughs> to waffle about his guy and wanted to give this guy a platform on History Hack since like last March, and he's so excited. Uh, so, oh, bless. <laughs> um, so speaking of last March, I considered rehashing my first ever down the pub for tonight, and if I remember correctly, the topic a year ago was the biggest bastard. 
Um, while bastard and revolutionary often go hand in hand, it would have meant completely rewriting the piece from a different angle. So I decided to look for something different. In very general terms, revolutions are paradoxical, seeking to bring about change for good by violent means. I expect you've probably already heard a few tales of mutinous guerrillas and anarchic insurgents tonight. But I believe the best revolutionary is one who brought about change for good by doing good. Someone who is considered the inspiration for peaceful resistance and non-violent revolution all over the world. One of history's most transformative and inspirational figures, Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi, better known by the honorific Mahatma, which comes from the Sanskrit words for great and soul. Born to and raised by a Hindu family in Western India, his father, a court official, provided well enough for the family. Though not poverty stricken, they were far from wealthy. As a child, Gandhi was restless and painfully shy, not mixing at school. He loved stories such as that of Harish Chandra, a king who gave away his kingdom and agreed to be a slave to fulfil a promise he'd made. Gandhi's lifelong identification with truth and love can be traced back to the indelible impression made by stories such as this one. He finished school and enrolled in college, but after just a few months, he dropped out. A family friend suggested law studies in London, but the birth of his son, meant that most of his family, particularly his wife and mother, were against the idea. He made a vow to abstain from meat, alcohol and women, and with the support of his brother, already a lawyer, managed to gain their permission and blessing. He would sail to England from Bombay. Religious elders warned that he would be tempted to compromise his beliefs and expelled him from his task, despite his vow. The vow which would become the first cause for him to challenge authority. His shyness and self-withdrawal were still very apparent, so he joined a public speaking group in an attempt to overcome this. He also took dance lessons and tried to adopt many English customs, but he always kept his vow. He joined the London Vegetarian Society, where a fellow member, Dr. Allinson, had been promoting a newly available methods of birth control. President and benefactor Arnold Hills, believing vegetarianism to be a moral movement, felt Allinson should be expelled from the society. Whilst Gandhi shared Hill's views on the dangers of birth control, he defended Allinson's rights with different opinion. It must have been inordinately difficult for the painfully shy Gandhi to stand up to the highly accomplished, eloquent and far senior Hills, but his principles and belief pushed, beliefs pushed him to do so. This empathy and compassion would go on to be the defining principles of Gandhi's life. In 1891, he was called to the bar. He then returned to India and began to practice law in Bombay, but his character meant he was unable to cross-examine witnesses. He ended up scraping a living, drafting petitions for litigants. He was given the chance to represent an Indian merchant in a lawsuit in South Africa. On arriving there, Gandhi considered himself Britain first, Indian second. Yet from the moment he arrived, he suffered such discrimination due to the colour of his skin and his heritage that it caused him to question India's place in the British Empire. Incidents included his being beaten when he refused to follow segregation rules on public transport. He was spat on and called things I won't repeat. A police officer repeatedly kicked him without warning for walking on the pavement. Indians were not allowed to use public footpaths. The magistrate of a court where he was representing his client ordered him to remove his turban. He politely refused. A pivotal moment came when he was thrown off a train. He sat shivering stranded all night at the station, contemplating whether to go home to India or stay and fight for his beliefs for basic human rights. He boarded the train the next day. 
The prejudice he experienced left him humiliated and unable to understand how anyone could find pleasure in such cruelty. It caused him to develop a calm courage and a strong desire to fight for human rights. When his case was finished, he was all set to return to India. However, he extended his visit to campaign against a bill denying Indians the right to vote, a right then proposed to be exclusively European. By this time, he was causing a stir, so much that when he landed in Durban early 1897, he was attacked by an angry mob of white settlers. He refused to press charges. During the Boer War and when the British declared war against the Zulu Kingdom, Gandhi encouraged people to volunteer for the Ambulance Corps. During the latter part of World War I, Gandhi's war recruitment campaign brought into question his consistency on non-violence. He was recruiting for combative roles rather than the Ambulance Corps. He stated that he personally will not kill or injure anybody, friend or foe, but he did suggest others should do so. Remember the incident in London? He didn't agree with Allenson's ideas, but he still believed he had the right to his own views, different as they may be. Following the end of World War I, in an effort to end Hindu-Muslim violence, Gandhi united the two religions in peaceful demonstration rallies against the British, who had promised India self-government at the end of the war, but had instead offered minor political reforms. During his life, Gandhi supported mostly underprivileged people by non-violent methods and peaceful protest. He organised hundreds of people and campaigned across the country against laws requiring Chinese and Indian people in South Africa to register, supporting peasants in India forced to sell their crops at a fixed price, and victims of famine protesting for relief from taxes. He was successful in every case. In 1919, ignoring Gandhi's warnings, the British government passed the Roller Act, which allowed the police to arrest anyone without any reason. Peaceful protests followed and British officers opened fire on a group of unarmed people gathering in opposition to the new law. People rioted in retaliation. Gandhi urged them to express their frustration with peace. He emphasised non-violence, both towards the British and each other, even in the face of violence. People planned large peaceful protests and Gandhi was told not to go to Delhi. He defied this order and was arrested. People rioted and British troops opened fire, killing hundreds of Sikh and Hindu civilians. But Gandhi criticised the rioters for not meeting the hatred of the British government exclusively with love. He demanded people stop all violence and destruction and went on a fast to death to pressure them to end the riots. By now, Gandhi firmly believed that Indians would never get fair treatment under British rule. So he turned his focus to political independence. And as leader of the Indian National Congress, he began to escalate demands for an independent India. Gandhi believed that India had come and remained under British rule by the cooperation of Indians. And by the refusal to cooperate, British rule would be caused to collapse. In 1930, he sent a very polite letter to the Viceroy regarding the British taxation of salt. He then further publicised the issue by the Salt March. He covered 240 miles over 25 days, often speaking to huge crowds. Thousands joined the march and a witness described the culmination. The men waded the ditches and approached the barbed wire stockade. At a word of command, scores of policemen rushed upon the advancing marchers and rained their blows on their heads. Not one of the marchers even raised an arm to fend off the blows. They went down like nine pins. This campaign was one of Gandhi's most successful. He called on women to campaign and boycott products, giving them a newfound dignity and confidence. And he finally convinced the British to negotiate. They agreed to release all prisoners if civil disobedience was halted. 
Gandhi intensified his demand for independence in 1942, and the British locked him up again, along with all the Congress Working Committee. The British partitioned the land, and India and Pakistan both achieved independence. So while he achieved his aim of independence, Gandhi opposed the idea that Pakistan be made a separate state and spent the day of independence appealing for peace. More than half a million people were killed in religious riots as between 10 and 12 million non-Muslims migrated from Pakistan to India and Muslims from India to Pakistan across the newly created borders. At 5.17 on the 30th of January 1948, Gandhi was on his way to a prayer meeting when a Hindu nationalist fired three bullets into his chest at close range. Over a million people joined the five-mile-long funeral procession and at least another million watched it pass by. He inspired people the world over, some of whom made small changes, others such as Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela, who've made great changes. Gandhi used this example. If I want to deprive you of your watch, I shall certainly have to fight you for it. If I want to buy your watch, I shall have to pay for it. And if I want a gift, I shall have to plead for it. And according to the means I employ, the watch is stolen property, my own property or a donation. Gandhi rejected the idea that injustice should or even could be fought against by any means necessary. If you use violent, coercive, unjust means, whatever ends you produce will necessarily embed that injustice. Permanent good can never be the outcome of untruth and violence. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Two wrongs don't make a right, and an eye for an eye only ends up making the whole world blind. These words, inflected with the heart and wisdom that made an international icon, continue an endless revolution, inspiring countless millions across the globe. A humble man who proved that in a gentle way you can shake the world has forever left his mark on the world. Mohandas Karamchand Mahatma Gandhi must surely be considered the best revolutionary ever. Well done, Kate. Um, we did cover this just because he, he is undoubtedly all the things you say he is, but I think we'd be being disingenuous if we said he was a perfect man um yeah no, some pretty nasty views about black people and stuff but again we're not looking for the nicest revolutionary in the world are we we're looking dire for the one that are we looking for the one that did the most good or did it with the least bloodshed or i i guess it's a it's a messed up criteria this week isn't it? No, well no i was just gonna say and also he he inspired so many other people to do so much good he wasn't perfect and he did uh, and it, I think from what I've read it was only briefly like periodically that he was um not very nice about um black African people but overall he did so much good and in such a good way I mean you know? comparing him to Lenin that's a that just sorry Beth that crap <laughs> Lenin did not die off. um yeah, it's, it is a tricky one. The, yeah, the criteria, and, and I think it, it sort of speaks to, to where we are today. That it, it it's sort of it, it's not possible to to have. Well, often, it's not possible for people to have a rational debate about div, divisive figures. You know, they either had to be good, they either have to be good, or they have to be bad, and there's no middle ground. It's it's simply not possible. Um, I, Gandhi, I think for the one who brought about the most change I'd, I'd put him up at the top personally 
just g- yeah, given what he achieved, I think um, I think it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, and I think also you have to um, consider under sort of his bracket, you also have to include people like Nelson Mandela and Martin Luther King who were so inspired by him. Hmm. Yeah, there's definitely that aspect to it, isn't there, Holmes? A knock-on for further change in the world as well as what they wanted for themselves. Definitely. And, you know, I hear what people say about the negative points, but there's a lot of positives with him as well. I guess the only thing I've got is that he was, he wasn't, he was in prison during the Second World War. And then, so he wasn't quite as influential when it came to actual independence. There were others involved as well, wasn't there? There were actual political parties involved because he didn't agree with some of them. There was, yeah, there was certainly, he was, he was a member of one. Um, if, if I, like, there's so much. Um, so much on him that I struggled to wade through it all. But if, if I'm correct, he was member of one or leader of one. Um, and yeah, he didn't agree with everyone, but he always stood up for what he believed was right. And he always, always, always said, you know, he always did never condone violence. And I think that's sort of where I was going with this in, in so far as, you know, to, you have to do good to do good i think yeah, I, I, I get that i just wonder if by the time by the time he was released from prison at the end of the second world war there were other people in place so this would have the actual independence would have happened anyway i think he was only um he was only in prison for i think in the end a couple of years if i'm correct but i i would happily be corrected on that one um and i think it was he'd been campaigning for indian independence from well strongly campaigning since about 1920 I think and and suggesting it and promoting it from even before that from very early 1900s if not late 1800s so all of the prior work that he'd done I think contributed to that independence and okay if he wasn't there at the very end he'd already set it up you know to ask someone who is like a proper historian of this period and this region if he'd had more input and hadn't been in jail of stuff, would we be looking at such a clusterfuck with partition? I mean, like millions dead. Um, yeah. For violent neighbours killing yeah. neighbours, um, which is definitely not his way of doing things. So perhaps- yeah, I mean, he totally opposed those partitions, didn't he? Yeah. But then, I mean, it's it's still a massively contentious issue, isn't it? It's. Mm. I mean, I think. No, if- I think if we've learned one thing, it's on April the 12th when we can all start drinking properly outside again. None of us are going to go to the London Vegetarian Society. Yeah. <laughs> no, they seem like arseholes. Yeah. Self-righteous wankers. But I'm sure they're not. I'm sure they're lovely. Sorry, bad word. There was, um, there was <laughs> two bad words there, technically, but there we go. What, vegetarian? <laughs> there was uh, the, 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 the chat that, um, that you referred to, uh, I, I also, as far as I could gather from Wikipedia, so it must be true, uh, was instrumental in founding West Ham, so he's a wrong one as well. Yes, definitely. Yeah, Hill was, yeah, he, he was Mr. West Ham, and he employed about like 6,000 people. He was this massive guy, and Gandhi was this little Indian dude who just turned up in England and was like terrified of everyone, and he stood up to him because he saw him he believed he was doing wrong. He believed he was wronging someone. I also, I'm he, trying, didn't, didn't found West Ham. I, I'm, trying to come um, up, I'm trying to come up with a gag that links founding of West Ham and the use of contraceptives, but with, given Sophie's here, I can't come up with the words to do it. So. 
terms of uh, Gandhi's cultural legacy, we refer to the uh, the words of, of Trigger and Only Fools and Horses made one film and you never saw him again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very well done. I really like that one. Uh, which brings us to our grand finale today. Oh, take it away. Last orders. In 1918, two anarchists, Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman, were expelled from the US by young J. Edgar Hoover for stirring up anti-war sentiment. Although both had been in the US for decades after being exiled from Tsarist Russia, neither had got round to obtaining US citizenship, a bit like an early Windrush situation. They were put on a ship and sent back to their country of origin, landing in Petrograd shortly after the Bolshevik Revolution. They were international political celebrities and treated kindly by the revolutionary authorities. Unlike many left-leaning visitors of the time, such as George Bernard Shaw, they were not persuaded by the new regime. For them, the dictatorship of the proletariat was not the inevitable triumph of the worker, but a betrayal of the worker. In Petrograd, they met with fellow anarchists who told them of the repression that they had suffered under the new regime. Those anarchists also told them of a beacon of hope that shone bright in the Ukraine, Nesta Machnow. It's primarily through the writings of Emma Goldman that we know of Machnow, who might otherwise have been lost in the mists of the chaos of what was the Russian Civil War. She and Berkman toured parts of what became the Soviet Union during the war, and they wrote about what they found. They searched out and met and befriended Machnow. Nestor Macnow does not fit the image of the stereotypical anarchist. He was not middle class. He was not educated. He was from very proletarian roots. He was born in rural Ukraine, then part of the Russian Empire in 1888. His father died when he was 10 months old, and at the age of seven, he started work as a shepherd, then a farmhand, in the summer and attended primary school in the winter. At 12, he left school and working full-time, moved at 17 to Liapol to be a painter and then an iron worker. It was here that he became politically active as he witnessed the oppression of workers and the, saw, saw the barbaric manner in which the Tsarists put down the 1905 uprising. His first arrest came in 1906 for re- robbery to obtain political funds. He was acquitted. Other attempts to imprison him failed until 1910 when he was sentenced to death. His sentence that was commuted to life imprisonment was served at the Revolutionary Academy that was Butryskaya Prison in Moscow. There he met Peter Arshinov, who, also known as P. Marin, the Ukrainian anarchist who became his tutor, mentor, and chronicler. Released from prison following the February Revolution, he made his reputation by establishing peasant unions, which confiscated estates from their aristocratic owners and gave them, them, gave them to those that worked the land. The signing of the Brest-Livosk Treaty handed Ukraine to the central powers and chaos ra- reigned as bands of Bolsheviks, nationalists and anarchists wrestled for control. Machnow rose swiftly to command the largest anarchist group. The Revolutionary Insurrectionary Army of Ukraine, more popularly known as the Black Army of the Ukraine. And for the next four years, he fought variously against the Germans, Austrians, the Mennonites, who murdered his brother, Ukrainian nationalists, the Whites, and ultimately the Red Army of the Bolsheviks. In 1918, the Black Army had 15,000 men under arms, including infantry, regular and irregular cavalry, 
as well as artillery. His army comprised mainly of peasants and Jews, together with some foreign anarchists. While early accusations of anti-Semitism were made against him, these appeared to be almost certainly unfounded. Indeed, he did much to oppose the blatant anti-Semitism of the nationalists. Other unfounded, unevidenced accusations included those of mistreatment of women, rape and participation in orgies, which sounds a bit like a Tory party gathering. Given the enemies that he had and the lack of reliable news services at the time, it's easy to see how rumours could spread, be spread in an attempt to distract, detract from his reputation. Suffice to say, such behaviour would have been completely at odds with his philosophy. At its prime, the Black Army controlled more than a third of Ukraine, in an area that became known as Manchnovia. Manchnovia was a stateless egalitarian society. Workers and peasants were organised into anarchist communities governed by a process of participatory democracy and were linked via an anarchist federation. When the insurrectionary army liberated a town from state control, it would post a notice clarifying that they would not impose any authority on the town. Workers, your city is for the present occupied by the revolutionary insurrectionary Mankovist army. This army does not serve any political party, any power, any dictatorship. On the contrary, it seeks to free the region of all political power, of all dictatorship. It strives to protect the freedom of action, the free life of the workers against all exploitation and domination. The Mankovist army does not, therefore, represent any authority. It will not subject anyone to obligation, what's any obligation whatsoever. Its role is confined to defending the freedom of the workers. The freedom of the peasants and the workers belong to themselves, and they should not suffer any restriction. Agriculture was communalized. Factories and railways ran cooperatively by the workers. The arts and theatre in particular encouraged, and education was promoted. Money was, if not abolished, reduced in importance, and many enterprises became money-free and operated through barter. In starkest contrast to the Bolshevik regime, freedom of expression was allowed, and new newspapers from a variety of political standpoints, including the right-wing and Bolsheviks, were established and permitted to operate. Specifically, he recognised that not all people living in the area would be anarchists and was at pains to include them and win them over by persuasion, a world away from the repressive ways of the Bolsheviks. His manifesto of 1918 and his proclamation to all peasants and workers of Ukraine of 1920 are short, beautifully written and accessible documents which encapsulate the spirit of Mankovia. I would commend them in his later writings available for nothing or next to nothing on Kindle. Although initially allied to the Red Army and assisted in his early days by Lenin himself, by 1920, Machnow was clear in his views of the Bolsheviks and their dictatorship. Despite the growing success of Red forces in the war, Machnow and his Black Army refused to join the Red Army. And after the defeat, largely by Machnow, of General Wrangel's White Army in November 1920, the Reds turned on their erstwhile an allies. Mackinac refused orders to disband, then intercepted orders given by Lenin, calling for the arrest of all anarchists. Many of his headquarters staff were tricked, arrested and executed. Mackinac escaped, but was forced into retreat. By August 1921, desperately outnumbered, outgunned and exhausted, Mackinac and 77 of his men were forced into exile, fleeing through Romania, Poland, Danzig, Berlin and on to Paris. Mackinac lived in Paris the rest of his life, 
writing about anarchism and funding his efforts by taking jobs as a carpenter, a stagehand at the opera and at the film studio, as well as working at the Renault car plant. He associated with other exiled anarchists, including Alexander Berkman, who also lived in Paris. He always expressed the desire to return to Ukraine to continue the fight, but sadly that wasn't to be. A worker to the last, he died in 1934 at the age of 46 from TB. 500 people attended his funeral. He was survived by his wife and daughter, who were arrested by the Nazis immediately after the German occupation and sent to a forced labor camp. Liberated by the Soviets, they were immediately arrested and tried for treason and imprisoned for eight more years. They then went to live in Kazakhstan. So why is this relatively obscure and ultimately unsuccessful revolutionary the greatest revolutionary of all time? He's obscure only because victors write history, and neither the Bolsheviks nor the Ukrainian nationalists who followed them want to tell his story. He was a man whose political philosophy stemmed from the struggle of the proletariat, both rural and urban, and not from the metaphysical systems and abstract social theorizing. He established a significant anarchist state, which collapsed not through any fault in its philosophy or structure, but by, simply by the size and duplicity and violence of the neighboring Bolsheviks. He saw the need for change from, from the representative, violent and abusive Tsarist regime, but also rejected the alternative offered by the Bolsheviks. He did not compromise his belief, power did not corrupt him, and he did not corrupt himself to achieve power. His death at a young age came far too soon. If he had survived, his experience and influence could have been invaluable to the Spanish anarchists who were, just a couple of years after he died, tricked and betrayed by their Soviet-supported allies. He was a worker who inspired other workers. He was a brilliant military commander. He created a utopia which operated benignly and in accordance with his beliefs. While much anarchist political writing is theoretical, academic and impenetrable with its jargon and factionalism, Despite or because of his lack of educational uh, education, MacNaus is, is pragmatic and accessible. He was the true light of the 1917 revolutions. He showed that an anarchist state respecting individual freedom was possible. The Bolsheviks distorted that truth and turned out the light. The last words belong to MacNaus himself and his summons written by him in 1907 at the age of 23. Let us rise and result, brethren, and with us the people beneath the black flag of anarchy will revolt. We will surge boldly forward under the fire of enemy bullets in the battle for faith and libertarian communism, our just regime. We shall cast down all thrones and bring low the power of capital. We will seize the golden purple sector and pay no more honour to anything. Through savage struggle, we shall rid ourselves of the state and its laws. We have suffered long under the yoke of chains, prisons, and teeming gangs of executioners. The time has come to rise in rebellion and close ranks, forward beneath the black flag of anarchy, and on to the great struggle. Enough of serving tyrants as their tools. That is the source of all their might. Insurrection, brethren, laboring people. We will sweep away all carrion. That's the way we shall reply to the lies of tyrants. We free we workers, armed with our determination. Long live freedom, brethren. Long live the free commune.
death to all tyrants and their jailers. Let us writhe, brethren, on the agreed signal beneath the black flag of anarchy against every one of them, the tyrants. Let us destroy all authorities and their cowardly restraints that push us into bloody battle. And anyone wishing to join Clive's anarchy movement need only approach him on Twitter. Clive, well done. Dyer, this one surprise you? Oh, you're on mute. He's lost for words. I don't lost for words, indeed. Um, again, yeah, not a man I've, um, I've, I've ever heard of before, uh, before now. And um, yes, he seems remarkable by the words of Wikipedia. Um, there, there doesn't seem to be a sort of huge amount of evidence about him. There, there's a lot of what seems to be speculation about what he achieved and what he did, as far as I can gather. He, he, he ran a state for four years, which was quite an achievement. All revolutionaries are uh, transitory. Even Lenin's revolution didn't last for that long mm. in the great scheme of things. Um, Macnow's revolution lasted a while, but ultimately he was destroyed by the, the much more powerful, well-equipped and numerous Soviets, and also more ruthless Soviets. Elena, you live about five minutes from the Ukraine. Did you know who this guy was? No, I've not. I've heard of Clive saying stuff about him before, but to be honest, I'm really sorry. I couldn't be bothered to look up who he was. <laughs> Holmes, if you put more effort in. Ooh. Well, I mean, I I did um, sort of laugh. <laughs> the picture's got a little. Oh, there we go. It's big again now. Um, I did have to go for a toilet stop halfway through that, so uh, I was hoping Johnny had picked up more. I thought I, I thought the accents bit will be coming up in a minute. I won't miss much, but I, yeah, I don't know if that happened or not. Um, he only seems to be like a partial revolutionary to me. He sort of was involved in a revolution. Is that right? I mean, the, the no, Russian... he le- he he led the revolution in in that part of the Ukraine. But with he Russian was support. the leader of the Ma- the Makhnovits. But with the uh, with Bolshevik support, is that right? Not well. He had some, t- not a huge amount of Bolshevik support, and at the end of the day, the Bolsheviks tried to kill him. But he he set up his own state, independent of the Bolshevik state. I mean, he seems like a, a very principled man, and a bit. I like. And the at, at the beginning, he was fighting. He was fighting against the. He was he was fighting against the Germans and the Austrians when the Bolsheviks were coming to treaties with them. So, no, he. He took on all comers. And then what would you say his legacy was? We've, obviously, there's a few we've heard tonight where their legacy... You can still- yes, you can look to Lenin's legacy being um, all the trouble that was caused in the Soviet Union afterwards. But what Magnow puts down is a very clear philo- political philosophy, which people still read today very avidly. And even as you know, we speak, there's some of the strongest... Um, elements of anarchist thought are occurring in the US at the moment, but as well as happening in other countries as well. Okay. Brilliant. Well done, Clive. I really like that one. Um, I think people might be surprised to find out that there's uh, such a open-minded regime down in that part of the world whilst the mm. were doing their thing. Right, okay. We have reached the end. Kit is now in bed. Uh, let's go round the room and find <laughs> out if um, you can't have your revolutionary tonight, which one would you have gone for? Uh, Clive, let's start with you. I think I, it's a toss-up between Bolivar and Gandhi, but I think I would ultimately go for Bolivar because he 
was kind of perhaps a revolutionary more in the traditional sense of organising revolutions as we typically know them. Okay. Charlie? Yeah, it's um, in terms of being a successful revolutionary, I'd say Simon Bolivar, because he's he's still got a country named after him. I did get confused at one point, though, Kit, because I thought Simon Bolivar, I thought this was an April Fool, because I thought he was the lead singer of Duran Duran, but I've realised that that's Simon <laughs> Le Bolivar, so got confused there. Erin? So Simon, Simon Bolivar is quite a contender, but there's just so much I want to unpack about Gandhi. It's Gandhi for me. Yeah. Kit? Um, if I go for Lenin, will Alina hate me forever? Probably. Maybe, Maybe try it. He's a long way away. She can't hurt you from there. I, I think when, when you when you look at when you look at the sheer effect on 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 history of the 20th century, it's hard to get away from from Lenin and still having an impact now with China. So Lenin, Chris and Sophie. I I, I think um, it's. It's probably a bit unfair because I missed a chunk of them and ignoring my obvious bias as to who I probably would pick, I'm going to go with uh, Clive and Mac now. Beth, what about you? Um, well, seeing as I missed quite a few of them and then ended up having to throw together some research, um, I must admit I was dipping in and out of what I did here. Um, but Gandhi was a really, really interesting one I'd not thought of in that way before. Um, really made me sit up and, and think. I mean, obviously, I think it's Lenin from my 20 minutes of prep, but Gandhi is, is, yeah, Gandhi's a really, really solid one, actually. I think it's, it's, there's a lot there that's to, to, to talk about and discuss. And yeah. Kate, if you can't have Gandhi. Um, I don't know because I only heard a few and I was sort of editing and, and prepping mine still. So I'm not sure it'd be really fair for me to say. Uh, I but... think what our listeners are deducing from this is that you're all really self-involved. Uh... <laughs> uh, yes, I am, I am 100 today, yes. Alina? <laughs> uh, well, I was going to vote for Chris and Sophie, but now because they didn't vote for me, uh, I'm going to go for Kate and Gandhi. Thanks, Alina. Like Eurovision. Really... <laughs> <laughs> I know, really. <laughs> I didn't hear yours, but I vote for you anyway. Oh, thank <laughs> you. Just My like Eurovision. <laughs> <laughs> Heather, what about you? This week, um, I I adored Chris's and Sophie's. That was great. I also liked Charlie's, but I liked Clive's, and I pretty much liked everybody's. And I'm I'm really struggling this week, so <laughs> I don't know. You're all rubbish. Um, I'm gonna go with Alina purely because uh, for a country that's been crapped on for the last 500 years uh, by everybody on all sides of it, uh, any lunatic that puts their head above the parapet there and tries to make a difference deserves a vote in my book. Uh, so I'm going to go with that bloke. Uh, right. Isn't that twice, twice in a week? Twice in a row? You've said that. Really? Yeah. That's what happens when you put effort in. Uh, judges what about you uh this is a uh, it's unanimous by the way this week but we couldn't decide between first and second 
So we were sort of looking at this. We were approaching, were they successful as a revolutionary and what the influence slash legacy was? So with that in mind, we couldn't separate the first two. So Johnny suggested we toss a coin. Uh, so we did. <laughs> Excellent. Who lost Ex- the coin? Co- uh, coin? Well, Co- I'll, I'll tell you who came third and then Johnny can announce second and first. But in third is Simon Bolivar. Well done, Kit. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, I think I can get who the top two are, and I think that's fair. Indeed. Um, yeah, we, I, we on, on the criteria that that, that we we took to, to judge upon, um, as, as we didn't really have, uh, we didn't really have a, a, a criteria set out other than best revolutionary. Um, second place, Lenin, um, just because there was there was just an extraordinary, not a particularly pleasant man, we grant. But um, in terms of uh, what he achieved and his lasting legacy, um, and also obviously by the same criteria, in first place is Gandhi. Oh my God! Yeah. <laughs> oh, well done, Kate. So, bravo! Oh, well, well put you. across everyone. And, uh, and again, you know, returning after my uh, my ban, um, it's uh, it's it's good to listen to a, a lot of stories that uh, I've never heard before. So, uh, thank you very much. Yeah, I, I was watching. I was watching Clive's face when Johnny read them out, and he was. To see, he looked like Jose when the fourth goal goes in, and uh, uh, he's down to nine men. <laughs> it's just no. It's just dire. Dire's back, and it's business as usual, isn't it? <laughs> I was going to say, I was gutted that I was like, you're going to tell me that beforehand that I lost because of a coin toss, but actually, I'm 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 very happy to lose to Kate on that one. Kate was that was exceptional. Clive, you know, you. Clive, you know, in the Peanuts cartoons where. Charlie Brown goes to try and kick the football. Uh-uh. It's Pep and Patty, and you know he thinks he's going to kick it. Uh, I think the burning question that everybody who's listening to this is: Holmes, what the fuck did you cover in the Midlands in history class? <laughs> so none of that. Exactly. Obviously, history of scratchings, history of pork pies. Um, <laughs> I don't really know. Mm. I remember in sixth form, I did. I don't know, Elizabeth I, hence my hatred for the Tudors, and <laughs> um, Europe, I don't know, 1487 to 1603, which is the Reformation, and a bit more Tudors. For GCSE, I can't remember, a bit of Industrial Revolution, a smattering of war poetry. don't know. The Battle of Bosworth stuff I mentioned, that was when I was eight or nine. Did you do the Blast Furnace? Probably. I've got a lot of, like, what? And, uh, I don't know, who were the two guys who did steel stuff? The boat who did the... Um, Bolton is one, isn't he? Didn't do the oh, yeah, Bolton, yeah, Bolton, Bolton was blast furnace, yeah. There was quite a bit of that. I remember going on a trip to Cromford as well. There was some history in there. Obviously, as well, the history of gravy must have been in there. Seeing <laughs> <laughs> as it is north of Watford. Oh, I thought that was a really good one, actually. Um, I don't know whether we're going to be here next week. I'm happy to, if you lot want to. Um, equally happy to take some time off. We've been gunning it pretty hard since this lockdown and we will have pubs very very soon hey sophie do you want to see my severed head girlfriend (laughs) (laughs) no it's educational no i can see it it's behind you can you see it on the shed that is not it what's that there's two (laughs) we just saw the top of amelia What's she doing? Why have you got another head in the cupboard? This is a normal conversation. 
Don't ask those sorts of questions, Alex. You don't know what the answer will be. Uh, all right, I'll stop the recording. Sorry <laughs> to all our listeners. I want to know the answer. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.